0: I'm Anne McElhinney, and I'm Phila McAleer. Welcome to a verbatim reading of the Inspector General's report on the DOJ and FBI's conduct in investigating the Trump campaign in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election. The report has been read in full by actor Adam Baldwin. It is brought to you by the Alan Philom Scoop and the Unreported Story Society. It will be posted chapter by chapter on the Alan Philom Scoop podcast page. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Subscribe to this podcast at HearTheIGReport.com. And follow us on Twitter at AP underscore Scoop. Thank you.
1: Chapter 11. Analysis. In this chapter, we provide the Office of Inspector General's analysis of the events described in Chapter 3 through Chapter 10. We divide our analysis into five sections. In Section 1, we discuss whether the opening of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation and for related investigations, and whether certain early investigative techniques used by the FBI complied with the requirements of the Attorney General's Guidelines for Domestic FBI Operations and the FBI's Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide. In Section 2, we analyzed the role of Christopher Steele's election reporting in the four Carter Page Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act applications and the numerous instances in which factual representations in those applications were inaccurate, incomplete, or unsupported by appropriate documentation based upon information the FBI had in its possession at the time the applications were filed. In Section 3, we analyze the FBI's handling of Christopher Steele and his election reporting, and whether the FBI's receipt and use of his reporting during the crossfire hurricane investigation complied with FBI confidential human source policies and procedures. Section 4 examines issues relating to Department Attorney Bruce Orr's interactions with Steele, Glenn Simpson, the FBI, and the State Department during the crossfire hurricane investigation, as well as whether the work Orr's spouse performed for Simpson's firm implicated any ethical rules applicable to Orr. We also analyze Orr's interactions with department attorneys and FBI officials concerning the department's criminal investigation of Paul Manafort. Lastly, in Section 5, we focus on the FBI's use of CHSs other than steel and undercover employees, UCEs, in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation and analyze whether the Crossfire Hurricane team's use of such individuals complied with department and FBI policies. We also analyze the attendance of an FBI supervisory special agent assigned to the Crossfire Hurricane investigation at counterintelligence briefings given to the 2016 presidential candidates and certain campaign advisors. As we explained in Chapter 1, we did not analyze all of the decisions in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Rather, we reviewed the topics described above. Moreover, our role in this review was not to second-guess discretionary judgments by department personnel about whether to open an investigation or specific judgment calls made during the course of an investigation where those decisions complied with or were authorized by department rules, policies, or procedures. We do not criticize particular decisions merely because we might have recommended a different investigative strategy or tactic based on the facts learned during our investigation. The question we considered was not whether a particular investigative decision was ideal or could have been handled more effectively, but rather whether the Department and the FBI complied with applicable legal requirements, policies, and procedures in taking the actions we reviewed or, alternatively, whether the circumstances surrounding a decision indicated that it was based on inaccurate or incomplete information or considerations other than the merits of the investigation. If the explanations we were given for a particular decision were consistent with legal requirements, policies, and procedures, and were not unreasonable, we did not conclude that the decision was based on improper considerations in the absence of documentary or testimonial evidence to the contrary. 1. The Opening of Crossfire Hurricane and Four Related Counterintelligence Investigations In this section, we examine the opening of Crossfire Hurricane and Four Related Counterintelligence Investigations of individuals associated with the Donald J. Trump for President campaign. Specifically, we analyze whether, in opening these investigations, the FBI complied with the requirements set forth in the AG Guidelines and the D.I.O.G. The applicable provisions of the AG Guidelines and the DIOG require that FBI investigations be undertaken for an authorized purpose, that is, to detect, obtain information about, or prevent or protect against federal crimes or threats to the national security, or to collect foreign intelligence. The AG Guidelines also require that FBI investigations have adequate factual predication, that is, allegations, reports, facts, or circumstances indicative of possible criminal activity or a national security threat. In addition, for investigations designated as sensitive investigative matters, SIMS, such as Crossfire Hurricane, the DIOG imposes special approval and notification requirements when opening such a matter. The D.I.O.G. also emphasizes that investigators take particular care to consider whether a planned investigative activity is the least intrusive method and is reasonably based upon the needs of the investigation. As described in Chapter 3, on July 31, 2016, the FBI's Counterintelligence Division opened a full investigation titled Crossfire Hurricane— to determine whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign were witting of and or coordinating activities with the government of Russia. The opening of the investigation occurred days after WikiLeaks publicly released hacked emails from the Democratic National Committee. According to the FBI electronic communication documenting the decision, the investigation was opened in response to information CD officials received on July 28, 2016 from a friendly foreign government indicating that in a May 2016 meeting with the friendly foreign government, George Papadopoulos, an advisor to the Trump campaign, suggested the Trump team had received some kind of a suggestion from Russia that it could assist in the election process with the anonymous release of information during the campaign that would be damaging to candidate Clinton and President Obama. We did not find information in FBI or department emails or other documents or through witness testimony indicating that any information other than the friendly foreign government information was relied upon to predicate the opening of the crossfire hurricane investigation. However, as noted below, the FBI received the friendly foreign government information at a time when it had reason to believe that Russia may have been connected to the WikiLeaks disclosures that occurred earlier in July 2016 and when the U.S. intelligence community, including the FBI, was aware of Russia's efforts to interfere with the 2016 U.S. elections. In the following weeks, the FBI also opened related counterintelligence investigations into four individuals associated with the Trump campaign, Papadopoulos, Carter Page, Michael Flynn, and Paul Manafort, because the FBI identified these individuals as having alleged ties to Russia or a history of travel to Russia. We concluded that the FBI's decision to open Crossfire Hurricane and the four related individual investigations was, under Department and FBI policy, a discretionary judgment call, and that the FBI's exercise of discretion was in compliance with those policies. For the reasons described below, we found that each investigation was opened for an authorized purpose and in light of the low threshold established by Department and FBI predication policy with adequate factual predication. We also found that the FBI satisfied the D.I.O.G.'s notification and approval requirements for designating Crossfire Hurricane and the four related individual investigations as SIMS. Nevertheless, we were concerned about the limited notice requirements under Department and FBI policy before opening investigations such as these relating to constitutionally protected activity occurring during a national presidential campaign. We were also concerned about the limited notice requirements before using more intrusive investigative techniques that could impact constitutionally protected activity. Accordingly, we make several recommendations below to address these concerns. A. Authorized Purpose The AG Guidelines and the DIOG both require that FBI investigations be undertaken for an authorized purpose. That is, to detect, obtain information about, or prevent, or protect against federal crimes or threats to the national security, or to collect foreign intelligence. Under both the AG Guidelines and the DIOG, the FBI may not undertake an investigation for the sole purpose of monitoring activities protected by the First Amendment, or to interfere with the lawful exercise of other rights secured by the Constitution or laws of the United States. However, both the AG guidelines and the DIOG permit the FBI to conduct an investigation even if it might impact First Amendment or other constitutionally protected activity, so long as there is a legitimate law enforcement purpose associated with the investigation. We concluded that under the AG guidelines and the DIOG, the FBI had an authorized purpose when it opened Crossfire Hurricane to obtain information about or to protect against a national security threat or federal crime, even though the investigation also had the potential to impact constitutionally protected activity. The FBI's opening EC referenced the Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA, and stated, quote, Based on the information provided by the FBI legal attache, this investigation is being opened to determine whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign are witting of and or coordinating activities with the government of Russia, unquote. We found that the FBI opened the Crossfire Hurricane investigation shortly after officials in CD received the friendly foreign government information on July 28. The opening EC documented the pertinent FFG information verbatim and described relevant background information. All of the senior FBI officials who participated in the discussions about whether to open a case told us the information from the FFG warranted investigation. For example, the FBI's then Deputy General Counsel told us that the FBI, quote, would have been derelict in our responsibilities had we not opened the case, unquote because a foreign power allegedly colluding with a presidential candidate or his campaign was a threat to our nation that the FBI was obligated to investigate under its counterintelligence mission. Then CD Assistant Director E.W. Bill Priestap, who approved opening the case, told us that the combination of the FFG information and the FBI's ongoing cyber intrusion investigation into the July 2016 hacks of the DNC's emails created a counterintelligence concern that the FBI was obligated to investigate. Priestap also told us that prior to making the final decision to approve the opening of Crossfire Hurricane, he considered whether the FBI should conduct defensive briefings for the Trump campaign about the information from the FFG. However, Priestep ultimately decided that providing such briefings created the risk that, quote, if someone on the campaign was engaged with the Russians, he, she would very likely change his, her tactics and or otherwise seek to cover up his, her activities, thereby preventing us from finding the truth, unquote. We did not identify any department or FBI policy that applied to this decision and therefore determined that the decision whether to conduct defensive briefings in lieu of opening investigation or at any time during the investigation was a judgment call that is left to the discretion of FBI officials. As part of our review, we sought to determine whether there was evidence that political bias or other improper considerations affected decision-making in Crossfire Hurricane and including the decision to open the investigation. Such evidence would raise questions as to whether Crossfire Hurricane was opened for an authorized purpose and serious concerns about whether the decision compromised the constitutional rights of any U.S. persons. We discussed the issue of political bias in a prior OIG report, review of various actions in advance of the 2016 election, where we described text messages between then-Special Counsel to the Deputy Director Lisa Page and then-Section Chief Peter Strzok, among others. These text messages included statements of hostility toward then-candidate Trump and statements of support for then-candidate Hillary Clinton. These messages, most of which pertain to the Russia investigation, potentially indicated or created the appearance that investigative decisions were impacted by bias or improper considerations. Our prior review stated that the text messages were not only indicative of a biased state of mind, but even more seriously, imply a willingness to take official action to impact Trump's electoral prospects. For example, on July 31, 2016, in connection with the formal opening of Crossfire Hurricane, Struck texted Page, quote, And damn, this feels momentous, because this matters. The Clinton email investigation did too, but that was to ensure we didn't F something up. This matters because this matters. So super glad to be on this voyage with you, unquote. Additionally, on August 8, 2016, Page sent a text message to Stroke that stated, quote, Trump's not ever going to be president, right? Right? Unquote. Stroke responded, quote, No. No, he's not. We'll stop it. Unquote. Although we did not find in our prior report any documentary or testimonial evidence directly connecting the political views stated in the text messages to the specific investigative actions in mid-year that we reviewed, We concluded that Strzok's text messages with Page indicated or created the appearance of bias against Trump. We further concluded that the messages raised serious questions about the propriety of any investigative decisions in which Strzok and Lisa Page played a role. Because several of these inappropriate and troubling messages occurred at or near the time of the opening of Crossfire Hurricane... We closely reviewed the roles of Strzok and Lisa Page in the investigation's opening and whether there was any documentary or testimonial evidence that their views impacted the decision to open the investigation. We found that while she attended some of the discussions, Lisa Page did not play a role in the decision to open Crossfire Hurricane or the four individual cases. Strzok was directly involved in the decisions to open Crossfire Hurricane and the four individual cases, but we found that he was not the sole or even the highest level decision maker as to any of those matters. Priestap, Strzok's supervisor, told us that ultimately he was the official who made the decision to open the crossfire hurricane investigation, and Strzok then prepared and approved the formal documentation as required by the DIOG. Evidence reflected that this decision by Priestap Was reached by consensus after multiple days of discussions and meetings that included Strzok and other leadership in CD, the FBI Deputy Director, the FBI General Counsel, and the FBI Deputy General Counsel. We similarly found that the decisions to open the four individual cases were reached by consensus of Crossfire Hurricane agents and analysts who identified individuals associated with the Trump campaign who had recently traveled to Russia or had other alleged ties to Russia, and that pre stapp was involved in those decisions. The formal documentation opening each of these four investigations was approved by Strzok, as required by the DIOG. We did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced pre stapps decision to open Crossfire Hurricanes. The evidence also showed that FBI officials responsible for and involved in the case opening decisions were unanimous in their belief that, together with the July 2016 release by WikiLeaks of hacked DNC emails, the Papadopoulos statement described in the FFG information reflected the Russian government's potential next step to interfere with the 2016 elections. These FBI officials were similarly unanimous in their belief that the friendly foreign government information represented a threat to national security that warranted further investigation by the FBI. Witnesses told us that they did not recall observing during these discussions any instances or indications of improper motivations or political bias on the part of the participants, including Strzok. We also reviewed the text messages and emails of each of the FBI officials in addition to Strzok who participated in the decision to open Crossfire Hurricane and the four individual cases and did not identify any statements in those communications that indicated or suggested the decision could have been affected by political bias or other improper considerations. We also reviewed other contemporaneous documents, such as meeting notes, and asked witnesses who were not involved in the decision to open Crossfire Hurricane, but who were familiar with the predication for the case for any evidence of political bias or improper motivation in the FBI's decision-making. Again, we found no such evidence, including from department officials briefed about Crossfire Hurricane subsequent to it being opened. These officials also did not express any concerns about the FBI's decision to open the investigation. By way of example, David Lofman, then chief of the National Security Division's Counterintelligence and Export Control Section, told us that it would have been a dereliction of duty and responsibility of the highest order not to commit the appropriate resources as urgently as possible to run these facts to the ground and find out what was going on. We therefore concluded the FBI met the requirement in the AG guidelines and the DIOG that Crossfire Hurricane be opened for an authorized purpose, namely, quote, to detect, obtain information about or prevent or protect against federal crimes or threats to the national security or to collect foreign intelligence, unquote. We also determined that although the investigation had the potential to impact constitutionally protected activity, the FBI's decision to open the investigation was permissible under both department and FBI policies because there was a legitimate law enforcement purpose associated with the investigation. Nevertheless, we believe that investigations affecting core First Amendment activity and national political campaigns raise significant constitutional and prudential issues, and therefore we recommend below that department policy require advanced notification to a senior department official, such as the Deputy Attorney General, before a department component opens such an investigation so that department leadership can consider these issues from the outset. B. Factual Predication. In addition to requiring an authorized purpose, Department and FBI policy also mandate that each case have adequate factual predication before being initiated. The predication requirement is not a legal requirement, but rather a prudential one imposed by Department and FBI policy. For example, the Supreme Court has held that the Department and FBI can lawfully open a federal criminal grand jury investigation even in the absence of predication, See United States v. Morton Salt, 338 U.S. 632, 642-43, 1950. A grand jury can investigate merely on suspicion that the law is being violated or even just because it wants assurance that it is not. See also United States v. R. Enterprises, 498 U.S. 292-297-1991. The AG guidelines generally describe predication as allegations, reports, facts, or circumstances indicative of possible criminal activity or a national security threat, or the potential for acquiring information responsive to foreign intelligence collection requirements. For full counterintelligence investigations, such as Crossfire Hurricane and the four related individual investigations, Section Two. B four of the AG Guidelines and Section seven of the DIOG state that the required level of predication is an articulable factual basis that reasonably indicates that any one of the three defined circumstances exists, including quote, an activity constituting a federal crime or a threat to the national security has or may have occurred, is or may be occurring or or will or may occur, and the investigation may obtain information relating to the activity or the involvement or role of an individual, group, or organization in such activity, unquote. The AG guidelines and the DIOG did not provide heightened predication standards for sensitive matters or for allegations potentially impacting constitutionally protected activity, such as First Amendment rights. Rather, as we discussed below, the approval and notification requirements contained in the AG guidelines and DIOG are, in part, intended to provide the means by which such concerns can be considered by senior officials. In Crossfire Hurricane, the articulable factual basis set forth in the opening EC was the friendly foreign government information received from an FBI legal attaché stating that Papadopoulos had suggested during a meeting in May 2016 with officials from a trusted foreign partner that the Trump team had received some kind of suggestion from Russia that it could assist by releasing information damaging to candidate Clinton and President Obama. Additionally, by July 31, 2016, although not specifically mentioned in the EC, the FBI had reason to believe that Russia may have been connected to the WikiLeaks disclosures that occurred earlier in July 2016. Further, as we note in Chapter 3, the FBI received the friendly foreign government information at a time when the USIC, including the FBI, was aware of Russia's efforts to interfere with the 2016 elections. Given the low threshold for predication in the AG guidelines and the D.I.O.G., we concluded that the FFG information provided by a government the USIC deems trustworthy and describing a first-hand account from an FFG employee of the content of a conversation with Papadopoulos was sufficient to predicate the full counterintelligence investigation because it provided the FBI an articulable factual basis that, if true, Reasonably indicated activity constituting either a federal crime or a threat to national security may have occurred or may be occurring. We similarly concluded that the FBI had sufficient predication to open full counterintelligence investigations of Papadopoulos, Page, Flynn, and Manafort in August 2016. The investigation of Papadopoulos was predicated upon his alleged statements in May 2016 to an employee of the FFG. According to the opening EC, Papadopoulos was, quote, identical to the individual who made statements indicating that he is knowledgeable that the Russians made a suggestion to the Trump team that they could assist the Trump campaign with an anonymous release of information during the campaign that would be damaging to the Clinton campaign, unquote. The three other cases were predicated on information developed by the Crossfire Hurricane team through law enforcement database and open source searches conducted to determine which individuals associated with the Trump campaign may have been in a position to have received the alleged offer of assistance from Russia. As described in chapter three, through these efforts, the Crossfire Hurricane team identified three individuals, Page, Manafort, and Flynn associated with the Trump campaign with either ties to Russia or a history of travel to Russia, two of whom, Page and Manafort, were already the subjects of open FBI investigations pertaining to, in part, their Russia-related activities. The FBI determined that this information, taken together with the information from the FFG indicating Russia had made a suggestion to the Trump team that it could assist by releasing information damaging to candidate Clinton, stated an articulable factual basis reasonably indicating activity may be occurring that may constitute a federal crime or a threat to national security. As with the opening of Crossfire Hurricane, we concluded that the quantum of information articulated by the FBI to open these individual investigations was sufficient to satisfy the low threshold established by Department and FBI predication policy, particularly in the context of the FBI's separate and ongoing investigative efforts to address Russian interference in the 2016 elections. C. Sensitive Investigative Matters, SIMS. We concluded that the FBI appropriately designated Crossfire Hurricane and each of the four individual counterintelligence investigations as SIMs or sensitive investigative matters. As described in Chapter 2, a SIM is an investigative matter that must be approved for opening by FBI management and brought to the attention of department officials because of the possibility of public notoriety and sensitivity. The categories of matters designated as SIMS include investigations involving the activities of a domestic political organization or an individual prominent in such an organization. Under the DIOG's definition, the term domestic political organization includes a committee or group formed to elect an individual to public office. Moreover, if an assessment or predicated investigation concerns a person prominent in a domestic political organization, but not the political organization itself, it nonetheless must be treated as a sim. For Crossfire Hurricane, the FBI believed that any potential subjects of the investigation would be prominent members of a political campaign. With the four individual cases, the FBI determined that the individuals identified as subjects, Foreign Policy Advisors Page, Papadopoulos and Flynn, and campaign manager Manafort were prominent in the Trump political campaign. We found the decision to designate the cases as Sims to be appropriate. However, as discussed later in this chapter, our interviews with certain FBI agents revealed significant confusion over the meaning of the phrase prominent within a domestic political organization in the context of the policies applicable to CHSs, with some agents interpreting that phrase as limited to a person running for office and other agents questioning whether a presidential campaign was a domestic political organization. We recommend later in this chapter that the FBI establish guidance to better define this phrase with respect to CHS use. Because the phrase is also used in FBI policies applicable to SIMS, we recommend that any additional guidance also take into account and be applied to the SIM requirements. We also determined that the FBI satisfied the DIOG's approval and notification requirements for SIMS. At the FBI, these requirements included review of the opening by the FBI Office of the General Counsel, OGC, which in this case was conducted by the OGC Unit Chief, and approval by the FBI Headquarters Operational Section Chief, which was provided here by then-Section Chief Strzok. The DIOG also requires that NSD be notified of the opening of a SIM. The FBI satisfied this requirement by briefing NSD officials in the Counterintelligence and Export Control Section, orally due to the sensitivity of the cases, about the opening within days of the investigations being initiated. Although the FBI satisfied the approval and notification requirements for SIMS, we believe such sensitive cases should also include advance notice to department senior management officials, especially for case openings such as this one that implicated core First Amendment activity and a national political campaign. While the then FBI Deputy Director was aware of and gave his approval for the investigation prior to its opening, the investigation— concerning the actions of individuals associated with a presidential campaign, could have been opened, consistent with FBI and department policy, without any notice to FBI or department leadership, and based solely on the decision of an FBI headquarters section chief with review by FBI OGC and notice to an appropriate NSD official. As noted in Chapter 2, current Department and FBI policies require high-level notice and approval in other circumstances where investigative activity could substantially impact certain civil liberties. The purpose of such notice and approval is to allow senior Department officials to consider the potential constitutional and prudential implications of opening certain investigations, even where there is sufficient predication to do so. Accordingly, We recommend that the department and FBI evaluate which types of SIMS should require advanced notification to a senior department official, such as the DAG, in addition to the notifications currently required for SIMS, especially for cases that implicate core First Amendment activity and a national political campaign, and establish, as necessary, implementing policies and guidance. D. Staffing of Investigation. Due to the sensitivity of the investigation, FBI leadership initially ran the investigation out of FBI headquarters rather than out of one or more field offices, as is typically done in FBI investigations. We found that the decision to run the investigation out of FBI headquarters created challenges for the team, which we were told were known risks and consciously taken by CD officials, including pre-STAP, in order to minimize the potential of an unauthorized public disclosure of the investigation and allow for better coordination with headquarters and interagency partners. These challenges included difficulties in obtaining needed investigative resources, such as surveillance teams, electronic evidence storage, technically trained agents, and other investigative assets standard in field offices to support investigations. Additionally, the FBI had to detail agents to FBI headquarters from field offices for 90-day temporary duty assignments, TDYs. Then, when these 90-day TDY assignments expired, new agents were detailed to FBI headquarters, resulting in three iterations of crossfire hurricane teams and supervisors from July 31, 2016, to the transfer of the case to the special counsel's office in May 2017. We found that this ad hoc staffing presented challenges compared to the established chain of command structure that exists in FBI field offices. The turnover of agents and supervisors resulted in a loss of institutional knowledge and a lack of communication among agents, analysts, and supervisors. While we did not find that conducting the investigation from FBI headquarters was the cause of the problematic issues we identify in this report, Witnesses we interviewed told us that investigating Crossfire Hurricane from FBI headquarters created significant challenges. We therefore recommend that the FBI develop specific protocols and guidelines for staffing and running any future-sensitive investigations from FBI headquarters. E. Least Intrusive Investigative Techniques The AG guidelines and the DIOG require that the least intrusive means or method be considered when selecting investigative techniques and, if reasonable, based upon the circumstances of the investigation, be used to obtain information instead of a more intrusive method. The least intrusive method principle reflects an attempt to balance the FBI's ability to effectively conduct investigations with the potential negative impact an investigation can have on the privacy and civil liberties of individuals encompassed within an investigation. The DIOG emphasizes that in the context of cases designated as SIMS, Particular care should be taken when considering whether the planned course of action is the least intrusive method, if reasonable, based upon the circumstances of the investigation. However, DIOG subsection 4.1.1 states that investigators must not hesitate to use any lawful method consistent with the AG guidelines when the degree of intrusiveness is warranted in light of the seriousness of the matter concerned. According to DIOG subsection 4.4.5, quote, In the final analysis, choosing the method that most appropriately balances the impact on privacy and civil liberties with operational needs is a matter of judgment based on training and experience, unquote. As described in Chapter 3, immediately after opening the investigation, the Crossfire Hurricane team submitted name trace requests to other U.S. government agencies and a foreign intelligence agency that conducted law enforcement database and open source searches to identify individuals associated with the Trump campaign in a position to have received the alleged offer of assistance from Russia. Members of the Crossfire Hurricane team told us that they avoided the use of compulsory legal process to obtain information at this time in order to prevent any public disclosure of the investigation's existence and to avoid any potential impact on the election. The FBI also sent Struck and an SSA to a European city to interview the source of the information the FBI received from the FFG and also search the FBI's CHS database to identify sources who potentially could provide information about connections between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and Russia. Each of these early steps is authorized under the DIOG and was a less intrusive investigative technique. After the FBI opened the four individual cases based on information obtained through the above described efforts, the Crossfire Hurricane team used CHSs to interact and consensually record conversations with two of the investigative subjects, Page and Papadopoulos, on multiple occasions in an effort to obtain specific information relevant to the allegations. The FBI also used a CHS to consensually record a conversation with a high-level Trump campaign official who was not a subject of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Use of a CHS to conduct consensual monitoring is a more intrusive investigative technique than the ones used immediately after Crossfire Hurricane was opened, but is also one that the FBI witnesses told us is commonly used in FBI counterintelligence investigations. For example... PreSTAP told the OIG that CHSs are an ordinary investigative tool that are part and parcel of what FBI agents do in an investigative sense every day. As noted above, FBI policy provides that these decisions are matters of judgment to be made based on an investigator's training and experience. We found that in making these judgments about using CHSs to interact with investigative subjects, The Crossfire Hurricane team complied with applicable department and FBI policies for these operations and obtained all requisite approvals. Although the CHS operations implicated constitutionally protected activity, we found no evidence that they were undertaken solely for the purpose of monitoring constitutionally protected activity, which is prohibited by the DIOG. We also found no testimonial or documentary evidence that these operations resulted from political bias or other improper considerations. We therefore concluded that these early investigative activities undertaken by the Crossfire Hurricane team were matters of judgment that were permitted by the AG guidelines and the DIOG. However, as discussed later in this chapter, We are concerned that current department and FBI policies do not require, at a minimum, consultation with the department before using a CHS to monitor conversations with members of a major party candidate's presidential campaign, including a high-level campaign official who was not subject of the investigation. Further, we are concerned that the FBI did not have a plan or process in place to address what the team should have done in the event a CHS operation resulted in the FBI's incidental receipt of sensitive campaign information. Accordingly, we make a recommendation below to ensure additional oversight, accountability, and consideration of the constitutional interests at stake in such operations. In addition to these CHS operations, the FBI also discussed in August 2016, within days of opening the Carter Page investigation, the possible use of a separate, highly intrusive technique to obtain information. FISA-authorized electronic surveillance redacted targeting Carter Page. According to Case Agent 1, the Crossfire Hurricane team had hoped that emails and other communications obtained through surveillance would help provide valuable information about what Page did while in Moscow in the previous month and the Russian officials with whom he may have spoken. As detailed in Chapter 5, the FBI ultimately did not seek a FISA order in August 2016 because OGC, NSD's Office of Intelligence, or both determined that more evidence was needed to support a probable cause determination that Page was an agent of a foreign power. As discussed below, after the Crossfire Hurricane team received the election reporting from Christopher Steele on September 19. They reinitiated discussions with OI and efforts to obtain authority for FISA surveillance redacted targeting page, which they received from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court on October 21. Because of the reviews and approvals required before submitting a FISA application to the FISA court, The decision to seek to use this highly intrusive investigative technique was reviewed and approved at multiple levels of the department, including by then-DAG Sally Yates for the initial FISA application and first renewal, and by then-Acting Attorney General Dana Bente, and then-DAG Rod Rosenstein for the second and third renewals. However... As we explain in the next section, the Crossfire Hurricane Team failed to inform the Department of significant information that was available to the team at the time that the FISA applications, including the first application, were drafted and filed. Much of that information was inconsistent with or undercut the allegations contained in the FISA applications to support probable cause and, in some instances, resulted in inaccurate information being included in the applications. Accordingly, we questioned the judgment and performance of members of the Crossfire Hurricane team involved in the FISA applications and determined that, as a result of their actions, senior department officials authorized the FBI to seek to use this highly intrusive investigative technique targeting Carter Page based on significant emissions and inaccurate information in the initial and renewal FISA applications. While we do not speculate whether senior department officials would have authorized the FBI to seek to use FISA authority had they been made aware of all relevant information, it was clearly the responsibility of Crossfire Hurricane team members to advise department officials of such critical information so that they could have made a fully informed decision. 2. The FISA Applications In this section, we analyze the role of Christopher Steele's election reporting in the four Carter Page FISA applications filed with the FISA court. Additionally, we detail and analyze the numerous instances in which factual representations in the applications were inaccurate, incomplete, or unsupported by appropriate documentation based upon information the FBI had in its possession at the time the applications were filed. As described in Chapter 5, within days of opening the Carter Page and George Papadopoulos cases on August 10, 2016, the FBI first considered the possibility of seeking to obtain a FISA order authorizing electronic surveillance redacted targeting Carter Page and George Papadopoulos. We found that the Crossfire Hurricane team initially focused its efforts on obtaining FISA authority targeting Page more than on efforts to surveil Papadopoulos or other members of the Trump campaign because of Page's prior contacts with known Russian intelligence officers, which the Crossfire Hurricane team believed would have made Page most susceptible and most likely to have received the suggestion or offer of assistance reported in the friendly foreign government information. We determined that on August 15, 2016, Case Agent 1 sent a written summary by email to the OGC unit chief describing Page's Russian business and financial ties, his prior contacts with known Russian intelligence officers, and his recent travel to Russia. In this email, Case Agent 1 stated his belief that the information provided a pretty solid basis for requesting authority under FISA to conduct surveillance targeting Page. The next day, August 16, the OGC Unit Chief emailed Stuart Evans, then NSD's Deputy Assistant Attorney General with Oversight Responsibility over OI, to advise him of the possible FBI request for a FISA order to surveil Page. The email from the OGC Unit Chief stated that, "...I don't think we are quite there yet, but given the sensitivity and urgency of this matter, I would like to get OI involved as early as possible." On or about August 17, 2016, in response to the Crossfire Hurricane Team's prior Carter Page name trace request, the Crossfire Hurricane Team received a memorandum from another U.S. government agency detailing its prior interactions with Page, including that Page had been approved as an operational contact for the other agency from 2008 to 2013. The memorandum also detailed the information that Page had provided to the other agency concerning his prior contacts with certain Russian intelligence officers. As detailed in chapters 5 and 8, the Crossfire Hurricane team did not accurately describe to O.I. the nature and extent of the information that the FBI received from the other agency, which we found was highly relevant to an evaluation of the FISA request. Additionally, in August 2016, Page made statements to an FBI CHS that, if true, were in tension with the reporting the FBI received subsequently from Steele, alleging that Page was being used as an intermediary by Manafort to conspire with Russia. The FBI did not inform OI of Page's statements before any of the four FISA applications were filed and did not inform OI of the CHS operation until June 2017, shortly before filing the last FISA application. On or about August 22, 2016, a decision was made by the FBI OGC, OI, or both, that more evidence was needed to support probable cause that Carter Page was an agent of a foreign power. The OGC ceased its discussions with OI about seeking a FISA order targeting Page. However, on September 19, 2016, the same day that the Crossfire Hurricane team first received Steele's election reporting, The team reinitiated discussions with OGC about seeking a FISA order authorizing surveillance targeting Page and specifically focused on Steele's reporting and drafting the FISA request. Two days later, on September 21, the OGC unit chief contacted the NSD OI unit chief to advise him that the FBI believed it was ready to submit a formal FISA request to OI relating to Page. Over the next several weeks, the FBI and OI prepared the FISA application targeting Carter Page, which was filed with the FISA court on October 21, 2016. The FISA court granted the first FISA warrant the same day, authorizing electronic surveillance redacted targeting Page for 90 days. As the Crossfire Hurricane investigation proceeded, The department submitted three renewal applications with the FISA court on January 12, April 7, and June 29, 2017, seeking authority to continue electronic surveillance, redacted, targeting Carter Page. A different FISA court judge considered each application before issuing the requested orders, which collectively resulted in approximately 11 months of FISA coverage from October 21, 2016 until September 22, 2017. As noted above in the OIG's June 2018 report, Review of Various Actions in Advance of the 2016 Election, we described text messages between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page discussing statements of hostility toward then-candidate Trump and statements of support for candidate Clinton. Several of these text messages appeared to mix political opinions with discussions about the investigation into candidate Clinton's email use and refer to the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. As part of our review of the Carter Page FISA applications, we sought to determine whether there was evidence that Strzok or Page affected the preparation of or decision to file any of the applications. As described in Chapter 5, Strzok approved the request to expedite the FISA application proposed by the Crossfire Hurricane team, and he and Lisa Page communicated with department officials, as did other FBI officials, in an effort to move the first application forward. This included conversations with NSD officials during which Strzok expressed frustration that the FISA process was not moving forward at the pace desired by the FBI. However, testimonial and documentary evidence we reviewed established that Strzok and Lisa Page played no role in the substantive preparation or approval of any of the four FISA applications, including the Woods process. We did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the FBI's decision to seek FISA authority on Carter Page. A. The role of the Steele election reporting in the applications. We concluded that the Crossfire Hurricane team's receipt the Steele election reporting on September 19, 2016 played a central and essential role in the decision by FBI OGC to support the request for FISA surveillance targeting Carter Page as well as the department's ultimate decision to seek the FISA order. In particular, the OGC unit chief told us that she thought probable cause was a close call when the team first proposed seeking a FISA in mid-August and separately when she discussed the idea with OI around the same time. She said that it was the Steele reporting received in September concerning Page's alleged activities with Russian officials in the summer of 2016 that pushed it over the line in terms of establishing probable cause that Page was acting in concert with Russian officials. The OGC unit chief's testimony was consistent with the testimony of the OI unit chief who told us that the Steele reporting was, quote, what kind of pushed it over the line unquote, in terms of the FBI being ready to pursue FISA Authority targeting page? Contemporaneous handwritten notes from Case Agent 1 and then Chief of NSD's Counterintelligence and Export Control section similarly indicated that in late August 2016, an assessment had been made by FBI OGC, OI, or both, that the information known at the time did not establish probable cause. In addition, we found no evidence of further discussions between the FBI and OI between late August and September 19 concerning the possibility of obtaining a FISA order targeting page. We determined those discussions were effectively reinitiated on September 21, two days after the Crossfire Hurricane team's receipt of the Steele election reporting. At the time, FBI OGC attorneys advised OI of the reporting from Steele that said for the first time that the FBI was ready to move forward with a FISA application targeting Page. Further, we found that the first FISA application drew heavily, although not entirely upon the Steele reporting, to support the government's position that Page was an agent of a foreign power. We found that the FBI's decision to rely upon Steele's election reporting to help establish probable cause that Page was an agent of Russia was a judgment reached initially by the case agents on the Crossfire Hurricane team. We further found that FBI officials at every level concurred with this judgment, from the OGC attorneys assigned to the investigation, to senior CD officials, then FBI General Counsel James Baker, then Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, and then Director James Comey. FBI leadership supported relying on Steele's reporting to seek a FISA order authorizing surveillance targeting Page after being advised of and giving consideration to the concerns expressed by Evans that Steele may have been hired by someone associated with presidential candidate Clinton or the DNC and that the foreign intelligence to be collected through the FISA order would probably not be worth the risk of being criticized later for collecting communications of someone, Carter Page, who was politically sensitive. According to McCabe, the FBI felt strongly that the FISA application should move forward because the team believed that they had to get to the bottom of what they considered to be a potentially serious threat to national security, even if the FBI would later be criticized for taking such action. As described in Chapter 5, McCabe and others discussed the FBI's position with NSD and ODAG officials, and these officials accepted the FBI's decision to move forward with the application based substantially on the Steele information. The FISA statute and FISA Court Rules of Procedure, FISC rules, do not establish requirements specific to the use of CHS information, such as steals to support probable cause in a FISA application. The FBI OGC's FISA guidance, described in Chapter 2, specifies that agents— should take into account the reliability of any informant, the circumstances of the informant's knowledge, and the age of the information relied upon when judging the evidence to support probable cause in any given case. As described in earlier chapters, we found that the FBI did not have information corroborating the specific allegations against Carter Page in Steele's reports when it relied upon them in the FISA applications, FBI OGC and NSD officials told us that the verification process set forth in the FBI's Woods procedures does not require that the FBI have corroboration for the CHS information presented in an application. According to these officials, when information in a FISA application is attributed to a CHS, the Woods procedures require only that the agent verify— with supporting documentation, that the application accurately reflects what the CHS told the FBI. The procedures do not require that the agent verify, through a second independent source, that what the CHS told the FBI is true. We did not identify anything in the Woods procedures that is inconsistent with these officials' description of the procedures. According to Evans, the FISA court is aware of how the FBI verifies information in a FISA application under the Woods procedures, including information attributed to a CHS. However, without corroboration, it was particularly important for the FISA applications to articulate to the court the FBI's knowledge of Steele's background and its assessment of his reliability, on these points, the applications advised the court that Steele was believed to be a reliable source for three reasons. His professional background, his history of work as an FBI CHS since 2013, and his prior reporting, which the FBI described as corroborated and used in criminal proceedings. As described below, the representations about Steele's prior reporting were overstated and not approved by Steele's handling agent as required by the Woods Procedures. Our analysis of the FBI's assessment of the Steele reporting is described later in this chapter. Following the FBI's decision to proceed with seeking a FISA order after consideration of the risks identified by Evans, OI developed a footnote based on information provided by the Crossfire Hurricane team to address Evans's concern about the potential political bias of Steele's research. The footnote stated that Steele was hired by an identified U.S. person, Glenn Simpson, to conduct research regarding candidate one's Donald Trump ties to Russia and that the FBI speculates that this U.S. person was likely looking for information that could be used to discredit the Trump campaign. Evans told us that this additional information made him comfortable with the way Steele was described in the application based upon the information the FBI provided to OI at the time. However, Evans also expressed frustration to the FBI at the time and later to the OIG that the FBI had not advised OI of the political origins of Steele's election reporting until late in the drafting process on the first FISA application and only after OI asked the team three times for information about Steele's possible political connections. B. Inaccurate, incomplete, or undocumented information in the FISA applications. The FBI's FISA and Standard Minimization Procedures Policy Guide states that the U.S. government's "...ability to obtain FISA authority depends on the accuracy of applications submitted to the FISA court. Because FISA proceedings are ex parte, the FISA court relies on the U.S. government's full and accurate presentation of the facts to make its probable cause determinations." It further states that it is the case agent's responsibility to ensure that statements contained in applications submitted to the FISA court are scrupulously accurate. As we discussed below, we found that the FBI failed to fulfill this obligation to the court. This failure falls most immediately on the shoulders of the case agents and supervisors who were responsible for assisting OI in the preparation of the FISA applications and performing the factual accuracy review during the Woods process. However, as we discussed below, we identified 1. Numerous serious factual errors and omissions in the applications Two, a failure across three investigative teams to advise NSD attorneys of significant information that undercut certain allegations in the FISA applications. Three, a lack of satisfactory explanations for these failures. And four, a continuous failure to reassess the factual assertions supporting probable cause in the FISA applications as the investigation proceeded and information was obtained raising significant questions about the Steele reporting. We concluded that these facts demonstrated a failure on the part of the managers and supervisors in the Crossfire Hurricane chain of command, including FBI senior officials. As described in chapter five, NSD officials told us that the nature of FISA practice requires that OI rely on the FBI agents who are familiar with the investigation to provide accurate and complete information. Unlike federal prosecutors, OI attorneys are usually not involved in an investigation or even aware of a case's existence unless and until OI receives a request to initiate a FISA application. Once OI receives a FISA request, OI attorneys generally interact with field offices remotely and do not have broad access to FBI case files or sensitive source files. NSD officials cautioned that if OI received broader access to FBI case and source files, they still believe that the case agents and source handling agents are better positioned to identify all relevant information in the files. In addition, NSD officials told us that OI attorneys often do not have enough time to go through the files themselves, and it is not unusual for OI to receive requests for emergency authorizations with only a few hours to evaluate the request. Despite the necessity that O.I. receive complete and accurate information from the FBI, our review identified numerous instances in which the FBI did not provide information relevant to the probable cause determination to O.I., And therefore, that information was not shared with either the decision makers in the department who ultimately approved the applications or with the court, which ultimately found probable cause to believe that Carter Page was an agent of a foreign power and authorized FISA surveillance on him on four separate occasions. We found this failure by the FBI particularly concerning given the critical gatekeeper role that OI attorneys have in ensuring that FISA applications A. contain sufficient evidence in NSD's view to support a probable cause finding and B. include information that is inconsistent with or contrary to the information presented in support of establishing probable cause. We concluded that OI attorneys were unable to fulfill this responsibility because members of the Crossfire Hurricane team repeatedly failed to provide OI with all relevant information. As a consequence, the factual representations in the initial and renewal FISA applications filed with the FISA court contained information that was inaccurate, incomplete, or unsupported by appropriate documentation based upon information the FBI had in its possession at the time the applications were filed. In addition, we identified significant errors with the Crossfire Hurricane Team's compliance with the FBI's Woods Procedures, which were adopted by the FBI in 2001 after errors were identified in numerous FISA applications in FBI counterterrorism investigations. The Woods Procedures are intended to ensure the accuracy of every piece of information asserted in a FISA application by requiring that both an agent and a supervisory agent verify, with supporting documentation that must be maintained in the Woods file, that each factual assertion is accurately stated, we determined that these requirements were not met with regard to any of the four Carter Page FISA applications. Below, we highlight the significant instances of inaccurate, incomplete, or undocumented information identified during our review, beginning with the first application. After the first application, we highlight significant additional errors and omissions in the renewal applications, including the agent's failures to update factual assertions repeated in the renewal applications, disclose new relevant information, and reassess the evidence supporting probable cause as the investigation progressed. Finally, we describe the failures in the performance of the Woods procedures that could have prevented some, but not all, of the errors and omissions we identified. One. The First FISA Application. As with all applications, the FISA court rules and FBI procedures required that the Carter Page FISA applications contain all material facts. Although the FISA court rules do not define or otherwise explain what constitutes a material fact, the FISA SMPPG states that a fact is material if it is relevant to the court's probable cause determination. In all four applications, the factual basis supporting probable cause relied upon Page's historical pre-2016 contacts with known Russian intelligence officers, as well as information from four Steele reports, reports 80, 94, 95, and 102. The most prominent of Steele's reports were Report 94 concerning alleged secret meetings between Carter Page and two Russian nationals, Igor Sechin and Igor Divyekin, in July 2016, and Report 95 concerning the alleged role of Page as an intermediary between the Trump campaign and Russia. According to Report 95, Paul Manafort was using Page as an intermediary between the Trump campaign and Russia in a well-developed conspiracy that involved Russia's agreement to disclose hacked DNC emails to WikiLeaks in exchange for the Trump campaign's agreement, to include at least Page, to sideline Russian intervention in Ukraine as a campaign issue. Steele told us that the allegations in Report 95 came from one person, person one, and were provided to Steele by Steele's primary subsource. The allegation in Report one o two that Russia released the DNC emails to WikiLeaks in an attempt to swing voters to Trump, an objective allegedly conceived and promoted by Page and others, also came from Person one, and was provided to Steele by Steele's primary subsource. However, as more fully described in Chapter five, based upon the information known to the FBI in october twenty sixteen, The first application, one, omitted information from another U.S. government agency detailing its prior relationship with Page, including that Page had been approved as an operational contact for the other agency from 2008 to 2013, and that Page had provided information to the other agency concerning his prior contacts with certain Russian intelligence officials, one of which overlapped with facts asserted in the FISA application. Two, included a source characterization statement asserting that Steele's prior reporting had been, quote, corroborated and used in criminal proceedings, unquote, which overstated the significance of Steele's past reporting and was not approved by Steele's FBI handling agent as required by the Woods Procedures. Three, Omitted information relevant to the reliability of Person 1, a key Steele subsource who, as previously noted, was attributed with providing the information in Report 95 and some of the information in Reports 80 and 102 relied upon in the application, namely that, one, Steele himself told members of the Crossfire Hurricane team that Person 1 was a boaster and an egoist and may engage in some embellishment, and two, the FBI had opened a counterintelligence investigation on Person 1 a few days before the FISA application was filed. Four asserted that the FBI had assessed that Steele did not directly provide the press information in the September 23 Yahoo News article based on the premise that Steele had told the FBI that he only shared his election-related research with the FBI and Simpson. This premise was factually incorrect. Steele had provided direct information to Yahoo News and also contradicted by documentation in the Woods file Steele had told the FBI that he also gave his information to the State Department. 5. Omitted Papadopoulos' statements to an FBI CHS in September 2016, denying that anyone associated with the Trump campaign was collaborating with Russia or with outside groups like WikiLeaks in the release of emails. 6. Omitted Page's statements to an FBI CHS in August 2016 that Page had literally never met or said one word to Paul Manafort and that Manafort had not responded to any of Page's emails. If true, those statements were in tension with claims in Steele's Report 95 that Page was participating in a conspiracy with Russia by acting as an intermediary for Manafort on behalf of the Trump campaign. And 7. Selectively included Page's statements to an FBI CHS in October 2016 that the FBI believed supported its theory that Page was an agent of Russia, but omitted other statements Page made, including denying having met with Sechin and Devyekin or even knowing who Devyekin was. If true, those statements contradicted the claims in Steele's Report 94 that Page had met secretly with Sechin and Devyekin about future cooperation with Russia and shared derogatory information about candidate Clinton. We found no indication that NSD officials were aware of these issues at the time they prepared or reviewed the first FISA application. Regarding the third listed item above, the OI attorney who drafted the application had received an email from Case Agent 1 before the first application was filed containing the information about Steele's boaster and embellishment characterization of Person 1, whom the FBI believed to be Source E in Report 95, and the source of other allegations in the application derived from Reports 80 and 102. This information was part of a lengthy email that included descriptions of various individuals in Steele's source network and other information Steele provided to the Crossfire Hurricane team in early October 2016. The OI attorney told us that he did not recall the Crossfire Hurricane team flagging this issue for him or that he independently made the connection between this subsource and Steele's characterization of Person 1 as an embellisher. We believe Case Agent 1 should have specifically discussed with the OI attorney the FBI's assessment that the subsource was Person 1, that Steele had provided derogatory information regarding Person 1, and that redacted, so that OI could have assessed how these facts might impact the FISA application. As described in Chapter 5, Evans and the OI attorney told us that they would have wanted to discuss this information internally with NSD and with FBI and likely would have, at a minimum, disclosed the information to the court. We were particularly concerned by Case Agent 1's failure to provide accurate and complete information to the OI attorney concerning Page's relationship status with the other U.S. government agency and Page's communications with the other agency about his contacts with Russian intelligence officials. As described in Chapter 5, in response to a question from the OI attorney in late September 2016 as to whether Carter Page had a current or prior relationship with the other agency, Case Agent 1 stated that Page's relationship was dated when Page lived in Moscow in 2004 through 2007 and outside scope. This representation was contrary to the information that the other agency provided in its August 17, 2016 memorandum to the FBI, which stated that Page was approved as an operational contact of the other agency from 2008 to 2013 after Page had left Moscow. It also was contrary to information in the FBI's own case files regarding Page's claims of interactions with the other agency. Moreover, rather than being outside the scope of the FISA application, Page's status with the other agency overlapped in time with some of the interactions between Page and known Russian intelligence officers alleged in the FISA applications. Further, Page provided information to the other agency about his past contacts with a Russian intelligence officer, Intelligence Officer 1, which were among the historical connections to Russian intelligence officers that the FBI relied upon in the first FISA application and subsequent renewal applications to help support probable cause. According to the August 17 memorandum, an employee of the other agency assessed that Page candidly described his contact with intelligence officer one to the other agency. Thus, the FBI relied upon Page's contacts with intelligence officer one, among others, in support of its probable cause statement, while failing to disclose to OI or the FISA court that, one, Page had been approved as an operational contact by the other agency during a five-year period that overlapped with allegations in the FISA application, two, Page had disclosed to the other agency contacts that he had had with intelligence officer one and certain other individuals. And three, the other agency's employee had given a positive assessment of Page's candor. The FBI also did not engage with the other U.S. government agency to understand what it meant for Page to have been approved as an operational contact, whether Page interacted with Russian intelligence officers at the behest of the other agency or with the intent to assist the U.S. government and the breadth of the other agency's information concerning Page's interactions with intelligence officer one, all information that would have been highly relevant to the FISA court's probable cause determination. Case Agent 1 was unable to reconcile for us the information he provided to the OI attorney with the information in the August 17 memorandum or FBI case files explaining to the OIG that he did not recall his state of knowledge in 2016 regarding Page's history with the other U.S. government agency. We concluded that Case Agent 1 failed to provide accurate and complete information to the OI attorney concerning Page's relationship and cooperation with the other agency. Further, we believe Case Agent 1, or his supervisor, SSA-1, should have ensured that someone on the team contacted the other agency after receiving the August 17 memorandum to determine what it meant for Page to have been approved as an operational contact, whether Page interacted with Russian intelligence officers at the behest of the other agency, or with the intent to assist the U.S. government and to seek additional information concerning Page's interactions with Intelligence Officer 1. We also found troubling the Crossfire Hurricane team's failure to advise OI of statements Page made, as noted in the sixth item above, to an FBI CHS in August 2016 during a consensually monitored meeting through which the Crossfire Hurricane team had sought to obtain information from Page about possible links between the Trump campaign and Russia. The CHS operation was one of the first investigative steps in the Carter-Page investigation and took place before the media had publicly reported the allegations in the Steele reports. During the operation, Page made statements that, if true, undercut the allegation in Steele's Report 95 received by the team in September that Manafort was using Page as an intermediary with Russia. According to the transcript of the operation, Page told the CHS that he had Literally never met or said one word to Manafort, and that Manafort had not responded to any of Page's emails. Page's statements concerning Manafort, which Page made before he had reason to know about Steele's reporting connecting him to Manafort in a conspiracy with Russia, were not provided to OI prior to the filing of the first FISA application. We agree with the OI attorney who told us that the FBI should have flagged these statements for inclusion in the FISA application because they were relevant to the court's assessment of the allegations in Report 95 concerning Manafort using Page as an intermediary with Russia. We also believe that as the case proceeded, that the FBI gathered substantial evidence of Page's past electronic communications. The lack of evidence showing substantive communications between Page and Manafort bolstered the need to, at a minimum, include Page's statements regarding Manafort in the renewal applications." Further, we were concerned by the Crossfire Hurricane team's assertion without approval from Steele's handling agent, Handling Agent 1, that Steele's prior reporting had been corroborated and used in criminal proceedings, second item noted above, which we were told was primarily a reference to Steele's role in the International Federation of Association Football FIFA corruption investigation. According to Handling Agent 1, He would not have approved the representation in the application because only some of Steele's prior reporting had been corroborated, most of it had not, and because Steele's information was never used in a criminal proceeding. The supervisory intel analyst, who told us he originally provided this language for an intelligence product prepared by his analytical team, told us that he did not review the FIFA case file or dig into exactly how Steele's information was used in the FIFA case. SSA 1 told us that the team had speculated that Steele's prior reporting had been corroborated and used in criminal proceedings because they knew Steele had been a part of, if not predicated, the FIFA investigation and was known to have extensive source network into Russian organized crime. The source characterization statement in all four FISA applications stated that Steele's prior reporting had been corroborated and used in criminal proceedings, and the renewal applications further relied upon this assertion as the basis for the FBI's assessment that Steele was still reliable, despite his disclosure of the FBI's investigation to media outlet Mother Jones in late October 2016. Given the importance of a source's bona fides to a court's determination of reliability, particularly in cases where, as here, the source information supporting probable cause is uncorroborated, We concluded that the repeated failure in all four applications by the agents and the SSAs involved to comply with FBI policy requiring that the handling agent review and approve the language was significant. This created the impression that at least some of Steele's past reporting had been deemed sufficiently reliable by prosecutors to use in court, and that more of his information had been corroborated than was actually the case." None of the inaccuracies and omissions we identified in the first application were brought to the attention of OI before the last FISA application was filed in June 2017. Consequently, these failures were repeated in all three renewal applications. As a result, the Department officials who reviewed one or more of the applications, including DAG Yates, Acting Attorney General Bente, and DAG Rosenstein, did not have accurate and complete information at the time they approved the applications. We did not speculate as to whether or how this additional information might have influenced the decisions of senior leaders who supported the applications if they had known all of the relevant information. Nevertheless, we believe it was the obligation of the agents who were aware of the information to ensure that OI and the decision makers had the opportunity to consider it both to decide whether to proceed with the applications and, if so, how to present this information to the court. We also do not speculate as to whether this additional information would have influenced the court's decision on probable cause if the court had accurate and complete information at the time of the first application. However, it was the Department's and the FBI's obligation to ensure that the applications were scrupulously accurate and that the court was provided with a complete and accurate recitation of the relevant facts, which we found did not occur. 2. The Three Renewal Applications In addition to repeating the errors contained in the first FISA application, we identified other similarly significant errors in the three renewal applications based upon information known to the FBI after the first application was filed and before one or more of the renewals was filed. As more fully described in Chapter 8, the renewal applications, 8, omitted the fact that Steele's primary subsource, who the FBI found credible had made statements in January 2017 raising significant questions about the reliability of allegations included in the FISA applications, including, for example, that he, she did not recall any discussion with Person 1 concerning WikiLeaks, and there was nothing bad about the communications between the Kremlin and the Trump team, and that he, she did not report to Steele in July 2016 that Page had met with Setchin. 9. Omitted Page's prior relationship with another U.S. government agency, despite being reminded by the other agency in June 2017, prior to the filing of the final renewal application, about Page's past status with that other agency. Instead of including this information in the final renewal application, the FBI OGC attorney altered an email from the other agency so that the email stated that Page was, quote, not a source, unquote, for the other agency, which the FBI affiant relied upon in signing the final renewal application. Ten, omitted information provided by persons with direct knowledge of Steele's work-related performance in a prior position about Steele's professional judgment, including statements that Steele had held a moderately senior position Not high ranking as noted in the applications, had no history of reporting in bad faith but demonstrated poor judgment, pursued people with political risk but no intelligence value, didn't always exercise great judgment, and it was not clear what he would have done to validate his reporting. 11. Omitted information from Department Attorney Bruce Orr about Steele and his election reporting, including that 1. Steele's reporting was going to Clinton's presidential campaign and others. Two, Simpson was paying Steele to discuss his reporting with the media. And three, Steele was, quote, desperate that Donald Trump not get elected and was passionate about him not being the U.S. president, unquote. Twelve, failed to update the description of Steele after information became known to the Crossfire Hurricane team not only from or, but from others that provided greater clarity on the political origins and connections of Steele's reporting, including that Simpson was hired by someone associated with the Democratic Party and or the DNC. Thirteen. Failed to correct the assertion in the first FISA application that the FBI did not believe that Steele directly provided information to the reporter who wrote the September 23 Yahoo News article, even though there was no information in the Woods file to support this claim, and even after certain FBI officials involved in Crossfire Hurricane learned in 2017, before the third renewal application, of an admission that Steele made in a court filing about his interactions with the news media in the late summer and early fall of 2016. 14. Omitted the finding from a formal FBI source validation report that Steele was suitable for continued operation, but that his past contributions to the FBI's criminal program had been minimally corroborated, and instead continued to assert in the source characterization statement that Steele's prior reporting had been corroborated and used in criminal proceedings. Fifteen, omitted Papadopoulos' statements to an FBI CHS in late October 2016 after the first application was filed, denying that the Trump campaign was involved in the circumstances of the DNC email hack. Sixteen, omitted Joseph Mifsud's denials to the FBI that he supplied Papadopoulos with the information Papadopoulos shared with the friendly foreign government, suggesting that the campaign received an offer or suggestion of assistance from Russia... And 17, omitted evidence indicating that Page played no role in the Republican platform change on Russia's annexation of Ukraine, as alleged in Steele Report 95, which was inconsistent with a factual assertion relied upon to support probable cause in all four FISA applications. We found the FBI's failure noted in the eighth listed item above to advise O.I. or the court of the inconsistencies between Steele and his primary subsource to be among the most serious emissions of information. As described in Chapter 4, Steele himself was not the originating source of any of the factual information in his reporting. Steele relied on his primary subsource for information who used his-her network of subsources to gather information— that was then passed to Steele. As described in chapters 6 and 8, during his, her, January 2017 interview with the FBI, the primary subsource made statements that were inconsistent with multiple sections of the Steele reports, including the allegations relied upon in the FISA applications. These inconsistencies should have resulted in serious discussions about the reliability of Steele's reporting, particularly to support a probable cause showing in a court filing, but did not. For example, regarding the allegations in Report 95 that came from Person 1, Source E, the primary subsource said, among other things that he she had only one 10 to 15 minute telephone call with someone he she believed was person 1 and did not recall any discussion or mention of wikileaks further the primary subsource told the fbi that there was nothing bad about communications between the kremlin and the trump team the primary subsource's account of these communications if true was not consistent with the allegations of a well-developed conspiracy in Reports 95 and 102 attributed to Source E, Person 1. Further, his-her statement that he-she did not recall any discussion or mention of WikiLeaks during the telephone call was inconsistent with those allegations. However, the FBI did not share this information with O.I. The FBI also failed to share other inconsistencies with O.I., including the primary subsource's account of the alleged meeting between Page and Sechin in Steele's Report 94 and his-her descriptions of the source network. The fact that the primary subsource's account was inconsistent with key assertions attributed to his-her own subsources in Reports 94, 95, and 102 should have generated significant discussions between the Crossfire Hurricane team and OI prior to submitting the next FISA renewal application. According to Evans, had OI been made aware of the information, such discussions might have included the possibility of foregoing the renewal request altogether, at least until the FBI reconciled the differences between Steele's account and the primary subsource's account to the satisfaction of OI. However, we found no evidence that the Crossfire Hurricane team ever considered whether any of the inconsistencies warranted reconsideration of the FBI's previous assessment of the reliability of the Steele reports or notice to OI before the subsequent renewal applications were filed. As a result, the second and third renewal applications provided no substantive information concerning the primary subsource's interview and instead offered a brief, conclusory statement that the FBI met with the primary subsource, quote, in an effort to further corroborate Steele's reporting, unquote, and found the primary source to be truthful and cooperative. We believe that including this statement without also informing the court that the primary subsource gave an account of the events that was inconsistent with key assertions in Steele's reporting left a misimpression that the primary subsource had corroborated the Steele reporting. Indeed, as we describe in Chapter 8, in its July 2018 Rule 13 letter to the court, the department, which was continuing to rely on the FBI's representations regarding the primary subsource's interview, defended the reliability of Steele's reporting and the FISA applications by citing, in part, to the primary subsource's interview as additional information corroborating Steele's reporting and noting the FBI's determination that he, she, was truthful and cooperative. When we asked the case agents and supervisory agents who participated in the preparation or woods review of the second and third renewal applications, they either told us that they were not aware of the inconsistencies, or if they were aware, they did not make the connection that the inconsistencies affected aspects of the FISA applications. For example, Case Agent 1 told us that he believed that someone else should have highlighted the issue for the agents working on the second renewal application because he did not know some of the details concerning Person 1 that would have helped him make the necessary connections. He told us that he did not know whether Steele had his own relationship with Person 1 such that Steele could have had another basis for attributing all the information in Report 95 to Person 1. However, given Case Agent 1's central role in the Page investigation, the primary subsource interview, and the preparation of the first two FISA applications and factual accuracy review on the third, we believe he should have been one of the first to notice and advise others about the problems the primary subsource's accounts created for the FISA applications. Similarly, we believe the supervisory intel analyst also should have noticed and advised others about the conflicting information— given he participated in the January 2017 primary subsource interview, helped supervise the team's evaluation of the Steele reporting, and played a supportive role in the preparation of the prior FISA applications. Instead, as discussed in Chapter 8, the supervisory intel analyst circulated a two-page intelligence memorandum to senior FBI officials highlighting aspects of the primary subsource's account— but failed to advise them of the inconsistencies between Steele and his primary subsource on, among other things, the key allegations against Page in Reports 94 and 95. In addition to the primary subsource's interview, we found other information in the FBI's possession that raised questions about the accuracy of the Steele reporting regarding Carter Page, but that was not included in the renewal applications. As described in Chapter 5, To support the allegations in Report 95 that Page worked to sideline Ukraine as a campaign issue, the first FISA application described two news articles from July and August 2016 reporting that the Trump campaign had worked behind the scenes to change the Republican Party's platform on providing weapons to Ukraine. As more fully described in Chapter 8, after the first application, the Crossfire Hurricane team Did not learn of any information that Page was involved in the platform change and instead developed evidence tending to show that two other Trump campaign officials were responsible for the change. Despite this, as noted in the 17th item above, the FBI did not include this information in any of the renewal applications or alter its assessment that Page was involved in the platform change. Instead, The renewal application stated that Page had denied any role in the platform change to the FBI in March 2017, but that the FBI assessed Page may have been downplaying his role. The renewal applications also continued to fail to include information regarding Carter Page's relationship with another U.S. government agency and information Page had shared with the other agency about his contacts with Russian intelligence officers even after the Crossfire Hurricane team re-engaged with the other U.S. government agency in June 2017, item 9, above. As described in Chapter 8, following interviews that Page gave to news outlets in April and May 2017, stating that he had assisted the U.S. intelligence community in the past, one of the SSA's supervising Crossfire Hurricane sought additional information about the issue. SSA 2 who was to be the affiant for renewal application number three and had been the affiant for the first two renewals, told us that he wanted a definitive answer to whether Page had ever been a source for another U.S. government agency before he signed the final renewal application because he was concerned that Page could claim that he had been acting on behalf of the U.S. government when engaging with certain Russians. This led to interactions between the OGC attorney assigned to Crossfire Hurricane and a liaison from the other U.S. government agency. In an email from the liaison to the OGC attorney, the liaison provided written guidance, including that it was the liaison's recollection that Page had a relationship with the other agency and directed the OGC attorney to review the information that the other agency had provided to the FBI in August 2016. As noted above, that August 2016 information stated that Page did, in fact, have a prior relationship with that other agency. However, the OGC attorney altered the liaison's email by inserting the words, quote, not a source, unquote, into it, thus making it appear that the liaison had said that Page was not a source. The OGC attorney then sent the altered email to SSA 2. Relying upon this altered email, SSA 2 signed the third renewal application that again failed to disclose Page's past relationship with the other agency. Consistent with the Inspector General Act of 1978, following the OIG's discovery that the OGC attorney had altered and sent the email to SSA 2, who thereafter relied on it to swear out the final FISA application, the OIG promptly informed the Attorney General and the FBI Director and provided them with the relevant information about the OGC attorney's actions. None of these inaccuracies and omissions that we identified in the renewal applications were brought to the attention of OI before the applications were filed. As a result, similar to the first application, the department officials who reviewed one or more of the renewal applications, including Yates, Bente, and Rosenstein, did not have accurate and complete information at the time they approved them. An exception with respect to Bente concerned information regarding the ties between Steele's reporting and the Democratic Party, which documents indicate were broadly known among relevant department officials by February and March 2017. Bente recalled knowing the information at the time he approved the second renewal. Rosenstein told us he believes he learned that information from news media accounts but did not recall whether he knew at the time that he approved the third renewal. As with the first FISA application, we did not speculate whether how having accurate and complete information might have influenced the decisions of senior department leaders who supported the renewal applications or the court if they had known all of the relevant information. Nevertheless, it was the obligation of the FBI agents and supervisors who were aware of the information to ensure that the FISA applications were scrupulously accurate and that OI, the department's decision makers, and ultimately the court, had the opportunity to consider the additional information and the information omitted from the first application. The individuals involved did not meet this obligation. Multiple factors made it difficult for us to assess the extent of FBI leadership's knowledge as to each fact stated incorrectly or omitted from the applications. As described in prior chapters, Comey certified the first three applications as the FBI director, and McCabe certified the final renewal application as the acting FBI director. As the FBI's senior leaders, Comey and McCabe would have had greater access to case information than department leadership, and also more interaction with senior CD officials and the investigative team. Further, as described in Chapter 3, CD officials orally briefed the Crossfire Hurricane cases to FBI senior leadership throughout the investigation. McCabe received more briefings than Comey, but both received oral briefings of the team's investigative activities, during one such briefing, McCabe listened to parts of the recording of the conversation between Carter Page and an FBI CHS in August 2016. In addition, in her capacity as the Deputy Director's Counsel, Lisa Page attended meetings with Strzok and the Crossfire Hurricane team and reported information back to McCabe. However, limited recollections and the absence of detailed documentation of meetings made it impracticable for us to determine beyond the more general investigative updates that we know were provided, what specific information was described during these leadership briefings, and the precise nature of FBI leadership awareness of critical facts. Moreover, we identified instances in which senior FBI officials were not provided with complete information. For example, although we found that Comey and McCabe had been informed the FBI had interviewed Steele's primary subsource, the two-page intelligence memorandum that they were sent highlighting aspects of the primary subsource's account failed to advise them of inconsistencies between Steele's reporting and the primary subsource on key allegations. Thus, while we believe the opportunities for learning investigative details were greater for FBI leadership than for department leadership, we were unable to conclusively determine whether FBI leadership was provided with sufficient information— or sufficiently probe the investigative team to enable them to effectively assess the evidence as the case progressed. 3. Failures in the Woods Process As more fully described in Chapter 2, the FBI's Woods Procedures seek to ensure the accuracy of every factual assertion in a FISA application by requiring that an agent and his or her supervisor verify, with supporting documentation, that the assertion is correct and maintain the supporting document in the Woods file. In the case of renewal applications, this process involves re-verifying the accuracy of old facts from prior applications that are repeated and verifying and obtaining supporting documentation for any new facts that are added. We examine the FBI's compliance with the Woods procedures by comparing the facts asserted in the probable cause sections of the FISA applications to the documents maintained in each application's Woods file. Our comparison identified numerous instances in which a fact asserted in the application was not supported by appropriate documentation in the WOODS file. The WOODS errors we identified generally fell into three categories. 1. A fact asserted in the FISA application that had no supporting documentation in the WOODS file. 2. A factual assertion had a corresponding document in the WOODS file, but the document did not state the fact asserted in the FISA application. Or, three, the corresponding document in the Woods file indicated that the fact asserted in the FISA application was inaccurate. Among the most significant Woods errors we identified in this review were 1. The failure to obtain the handling agent's approval of the source characterization statements for Steele and another FBI CHS whose information was relied upon in the applications. 2. Documentation in the Woods file used to support the FBI's statement that Steele only shared his election-related research with Simpson actually stated that Steele also shared the information with the State Department. And three, documentation in the Woods file to support the FBI's assertion that Page did not refute his alleged contacts with Sechin and Devyekin to an FBI CHS actually stated that Page specifically denied meeting with Sechin and Devyekin to the CHS. Appendix 1 describes additional Woods errors that our review identified. Some of the Woods errors, including the ones highlighted above, were repeated in all four applications, demonstrating that the agents and supervisors performing the Woods procedures did not attempt to re-verify the accuracy of factual assertions repeated from prior applications, or if they did, they did not read the documents completely, but only confirmed that a corresponding document appeared in the Woods file. As described in Chapter 2, the Woods Procedures were adopted in 2001 following errors in numerous FISA applications in counterterrorism investigations. When properly followed, the Woods Procedures help reduce errors in the information supporting a FISA application by requiring an agent to identify and maintain a source document for every fact asserted in the application and complete a list of database searches on the FISA target and any CHSs relied upon in the application. We observed that the Woods process focuses on the facts actually asserted in an application and will not necessarily identify relevant facts that are missing from an application. For this reason, performance of the Woods procedures alone would have caught some but not all of the many problems we identified. We believe these problems nevertheless would have been caught or never would have existed in the first place had the Crossfire Hurricane team adequately performed its duty of sharing all relevant information with the OI. C. Conclusions regarding the FISA applications. 1. The failure to share relevant factual information with OI, the department's decision-makers and the court, and other FISA-related errors. As described in chapters 5 and 7, all four FISA applications received the necessary department approvals and certifications In each instance, the approval required for submission of the proposed application, red copy, was appropriately executed by the OI Unit Chief, and the final application was certified by the FBI Director or Acting Director and approved by the DAG or, in the case of the second renewal application, the Acting Attorney General. Further, we found that all four applications received more attention and scrutiny than a typical FISA application in terms of the additional layers of review and number of high-level officials who read the application. This was particularly true in the first application, which underwent a lengthy review and editing process within NSD, the FBI OGC, and ODAG. However, as discussed above, relevant information was not shared with and consequently not considered by the decision-makers who ultimately decided to support the applications. The failure to update OI with accurate and complete information resulted in FISA applications that made it appear that the evidence supporting probable cause was stronger than was actually the case. Based upon the information in the application, Yates told us that when she approved and signed the first application, she did not believe it presented a close call from a legal sufficiency standpoint, and she was comfortable that the request for FISA authority sought by the FBI was an appropriate investigative step to take. Similarly, Rosenstein told us that by the time he signed renewal application number three, probable cause was not a great stretch and seemed obvious to him, given that the prior applications relied upon the same information that had been approved and granted three times by federal judges. As detailed in this report, these assessments by these decision-makers were not based on a complete understanding of all relevant information that was available to the FBI at the time the applications were submitted. Indeed, by the time Rosenstein signed the final application, among other things, the following information had not been provided to the decision-makers. 1. Steele's primary subsource had not confirmed the allegations regarding Carter Page to the FBI and instead gave an account that was inconsistent with and contradicted them. And two, testimonial and documentary evidence obtained by the FBI tended to show that other Trump campaign officials, not Page, were responsible for influencing the Republican platform change. Some factual misstatements and omissions were arguably more significant than others, but we concluded that the case agents' failures to share all relevant information with OI made OI unable to perform its gatekeeper function and deprived the decision makers the opportunity to make fully informed decisions. While we found isolated instances where a case agent forwarded documentation to the OI attorney that included, among other things, information omitted from the FISA applications, we noted that in those instances, the Crossfire Hurricane team did not alert the OI attorney to the information. For example, when case agent 6 provided the OI attorney in June 2017 with the 163-page document detailing Page's meeting with the FBI CHS in August 2016, he directed the OI attorney's attention to statements that Page made that the FBI believed furthered the FISA application, but did not identify for the OI attorney relevant information that tended to undercut the probable cause analysis. Although we agreed with the OI attorney that he should have examined the material that the FBI provided to him more carefully, we concluded that the responsibility to raise relevant issues for OI fell squarely on the case agents who were most familiar with the case information. Further, we found instances when the OI attorney asked the Crossfire Hurricane team the right questions, such as in September 2016 when he asked the case agent about Page's relationship with the other U.S. government agency, yet was provided with inaccurate or incomplete information. As noted previously, we do not speculate whether the correction of any particular misstatement or omission, or some combination thereof, would have resulted in a different outcome. Nevertheless, The decision-makers should have been given complete and accurate information so that they could have meaningfully performed their duty to evaluate probable cause. The failure to update OI on all significant case developments relevant to the FISA applications led us to conclude that the agents did not give equal attention or treatment to the relevant facts that did not support probable cause or reassess the evidence supporting probable cause as the investigation progressed. The FISA request form does not specifically ask the case agent to share with OI information that, if accurate, would tend to undermine or would be inconsistent with the information being relied upon to support the government's theory, in whole or in part, that the target is a foreign power or an agent of a foreign power. We believe sworn law enforcement officers should already understand this basic obligation based on their training and experience. Nevertheless, We recommend that the FBI and the Department take additional steps to reemphasize this obligation in the FISA context and help ensure that agents focus their attention equally on their obligation to share information with OI that might detract from a probable cause finding, regardless of whether they believe it to be true. FBI procedures should also ensure that OI receives all information that bears on the reliability of every CHS whose information the FBI tends to rely upon in the FISA application. This should include all information from the Derogatory Information subfile, recommended later in our analysis of the FBI's relationship with Steele and its assessment of Steele's election reporting. A more robust questionnaire in the FISA request form could also help ensure that all relevant information is shared with OI so that its attorneys can do their job and that case agents are not leaving to themselves the determination that is also properly OIs of what information might be significant or relevant to probable cause or should be disclosed to the court. We also found the quantity of omissions and inaccuracies in the applications and the obvious errors in the Woods procedures deeply concerning. Although we did not find documentary or testimonial evidence of intentional misconduct on the part of the case agents who assisted OI in preparing the applications or the agents and supervisors who performed the Woods procedures, we also did not receive satisfactory explanations for the errors or missing information. In most instances, witnesses told us that they either did not know or recall why the information was not shared with OI, that the failure to do so may have been an oversight, that they did not recognize at the time the relevance of the information to the FISA application, or that they did not believe the missing information to be significant. On this last point, we believe that the case agent's may have improperly substituted their own judgments in place of the judgment of OI to consider the potential materiality of the information, or in place of the court to weigh the probative value of the information. As described above, given that certain factual misstatements were repeated in all four applications across three different investigative teams, we also concluded that agents and supervisors failed to appropriately perform the Woods procedures on the renewal applications by not giving much, if any, attention to re-verifying old facts. We recommend that the Woods form be revised to emphasize to agents and their supervisors this obligation and to have them certify that they re-verified factual assertions repeated from prior applications. As noted throughout this report, Case Agent 1 was primarily responsible for some of the most significant errors and omissions in the FISA applications, including 1. The mischaracterization of Steele's prior reporting resulting from his failure to seek review and approval of the statement from the handling agent as the Woods procedures required, Two, the failure to advise OI of Papadopoulos' statements to FBI CHS's that were inconsistent with the Steele reporting relied upon in the FISA applications that there was a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between individuals associated with the Trump campaign in Russia. Three, the failure to advise OI of Page's statements to an FBI CHS regarding him having no communications with Manafort and denying the alleged meetings with Sechin and Devyekin. 4. Providing inaccurate and incomplete information to OI about information provided by another U.S. government agency regarding its past relationship with Page that was highly relevant to the applications. 5. The failure to advise OI of the information from Bruce Orr about Steele and his election reporting. And 6. The failure to advise OI of the inconsistencies between Steele and his primary subsource. The explanations that Case Agent 1 provided for these errors and omissions are summarized in Chapter 5 and Chapter 8 of this report. While we found no documentary or testimonial evidence that this pattern of errors by Case Agent 1 was intentional, we also did not find his explanations for so many significant and repeated failures to be satisfactory. We therefore concluded that these explanations did not excuse his failure to meet his responsibility to ensure that the initial FISA application, the first renewal application, and the third renewal application were scrupulously accurate. We similarly found errors by supervisory FBI employees with responsibility for the accuracy of the FBI applications. For example, SSA 1 performed the supervisory accuracy review for the first application required under the Woods Procedures and did not correct the errors we identified before the application was filed. We found that the team speculated that Steele's prior reporting had been corroborated and used in criminal proceedings but did not take reasonable steps to ensure the accuracy of this statement and did not confirm that Handling Agent 1 had reviewed and approved its content as required by the Woods Procedures. Separately, SSA 3 and SSA 5 failed to correct all of the errors we identified in the renewal applications, as did Case Agent 1 and Case Agent 7, when they performed the accuracy review under the Woods Procedures for one or more of the renewals. These failures by supervisory and non-supervisory agents represent serious performance failures. However, as we next discuss, the breadth and significance of these and other errors raised broader concerns as well. 2. Failures of managers and supervisors, including senior officials in the chain of command. As this chapter summarizes, we identified at least 17 significant errors and omissions in the Carter Page FISA applications, and many additional Woods-related errors. These errors and omissions resulted from case agents providing wrong or incomplete information to OI and failing to flag important issues for discussion without any satisfactory explanations. Moreover, case agents and SSAs did not give equal attention or treatment to the relevant facts that did not support probable cause or reassess the evidence supporting probable cause as the investigation progressed and the information gathered undercut the assertions in the FISA applications. Further, the agents and SSAs did not follow or appear to even know the requirements in the WOODS procedures to re-verify the factual assertions from previous applications that are repeated in renewal applications and verify source characterization statements with the CHS handling agent and document the verification in the WOODS file that so many basic and fundamental errors were made on four FISA applications by three separate hand-picked teams on one of the most sensitive FBI investigations that was briefed to the highest levels within the FBI and that FBI officials expected would eventually be subjected to close scrutiny raised significant questions regarding the FBI chain of command's management and supervision of the FISA process. As described in prior chapters, FBI headquarters established a chain of command for Crossfire Hurricane that included close supervision by senior CD managers who then briefed FBI leadership throughout the investigation. Although we do not expect managers and supervisors to know every fact about an investigation or senior leaders to know all the details of cases they are briefed on, in a sensitive, high-priority matter like this one, It is reasonable to expect that they will take the necessary steps to ensure that they are sufficiently familiar with the facts and circumstances supporting and potentially undermining a FISA application in order to provide effective oversight consistent with their level of supervisory responsibility. We did not find that this was the case with the Carter Page FISA applications. Time and again, when we questioned managers, supervisors, and senior officials during their OIG interviews about the breadth of issues we identified during the review, the answers we received reflected a lack of understanding or awareness of important information that related to many of the problems we identified. Nevertheless, we found that managers, supervisors, and senior officials in the chain of command were aware of sufficient information that should have resulted in questions being raised regarding the reliability of the steel reporting and the probable cause supporting the FISA applications. For example, after months of effort, the Crossfire Hurricane team had not corroborated and any of the specific substantive allegations against Carter Page contained in the election reporting and relied on in the FISA applications, confirming only limited factual details such as Page's dates of travel or any other evidence implicating Page. In fact, as discussed in Chapter 7, before Renewal Application number 2 was submitted to the Court in April 2017, the Deputy Assistant Director and SSAs at FBI headquarters supervising the Carter Page case had actually discussed, based upon the information gathered by that time, whether Page was a significant subject in the FBI's investigation by that time, let alone be the target of a FISA order. In addition, senior FBI officials were aware of Steele's political ties and his disclosures of information to Mother Jones and other third parties. The Crossfire Hurricane team had also received information directly from persons with direct knowledge of Steele's work-related performance in a prior position that he had a history of demonstrating poor judgment, and they were aware of the information from Orr concerning Steele's motivations and potential bias. Additionally, before the final FISA renewal application, The team had received the results of the FBI's source validation review of Steele, including the finding that Steele's past assistance to the FBI's criminal program had been minimally corroborated and Stroke and other supervisors had received information that Steele had been a source for the Yahoo News article. We recognize that FBI managers, supervisors, and senior officials in the chain of command were not made aware of all the significant information undermining the Steele reporting, such as the inconsistencies between the reporting relied upon in the FISA applications and the primary subsources' accounts of this information. Nevertheless, we concluded that the information that was known to them should have resulted in greater vigilance in overseeing the use of a highly intrusive technique in such a sensitive case— but did not. In our view, this was a failure of not only the operational team, but also the managers and supervisors, including senior officials in the chain of command. For these reasons, we recommend that the FBI review the performance of the employees who had responsibility for the preparation, Woods review, or approval of the FISA applications, as well as the managers, supervisors, and senior officials in the chain of command of the Carter Page investigation and take any action deemed appropriate. In addition, given the extensive compliance failures we identified in this review, we believe that additional OIG oversight work is required to assess the FBI's compliance with Department and FBI-Pfizer-related policies that seek to protect the civil liberties of U.S. persons. Accordingly, we have initiated an OIG audit that will further examine the FBI's compliance with the Woods procedures in FISA applications that target U.S. persons in both counterintelligence and counterterrorism investigations. This audit will be informed by the findings in this review, as well as by our prior work over the past 15 years on the Department's and FBI's use of national security and surveillance authorities, including authorities under FISA, as detailed in Chapter 1. 3. Clarification regarding OGC legal review during the Woods process. As described in Chapter 2, the Woods procedures do not currently explain the steps that should be taken during OGC's final legal review of a FISA application or require that documentation of the final legal review be maintained in an appropriate FBI file. And as described in Chapter 7, the FBI was unable to provide the OIG with documentation of the OGC legal review of renewal application numbers 1 and 2. We therefore recommend that the FBI revise the Woods procedures to specify what steps must be taken and documented during the legal review performed by an OGC line attorney, an SES-level supervisor, before submitting the FISA application package to the FBI director for certification. Because we were advised that the SES-level review is sometimes delegated to a non-SES-level supervisor, we also recommend that the FBI revise the Woods procedures to clarify which positions may serve as the supervisory reviewer for OGC. 3. The FBI's Relationship with Christopher Steele and its Receipt and Use of His Election Reporting. In this section, we analyze the FBI's handling of Christopher Steele and its use of his election reporting in Crossfire Hurricane, and whether the FBI's receipt and use of his reporting during that investigation complied with FBI CHS policies and procedures. As described in Chapter 4, Steele is a former intelligence officer, redacted, who in 2009 formed a consulting firm specializing in corporate intelligence and investigative services. In 2010, Steele was introduced by Department Attorney Bruce Orr to an FBI agent and for several years provided information to the FBI about various matters such as corruption in the International Federation of Association Football, FIFA. In October 2013, the FBI agent, referred to in our report as Handling Agent 1, completed the paperwork to make Steele an FBI CHS. Handling Agent 1 took the step because the volume of Steele's reporting had increased and involved persons of interest to the FBI, and he wanted to task Steele to collect additional information and compensate him for this work. Over the next three years, Steele provided the FBI with reporting primarily about Russian oligarchs. In June 2016, Steele and his consulting firm were hired by Fusion GPS, a Washington, D.C. investigative firm. To obtain information about whether Russia was trying to achieve a particular outcome in the 2016 U.S. elections, what personal and business ties then-candidate Trump had in Russia, and whether there were any ties between the Russian government and Trump or his campaign. Steele's work for Fusion GPS resulted in at least redacted reports related to the election and, with Fusion GPS's authorization, Steele provided redacted other reports to the FBI between July and October 2016 and redacted others to the FBI through OR and other third parties, as we described in Chapters 6 and 9. As noted earlier, we determined that Steele's election reporting played a central and essential role in the Department's decision in connection with the Crossfire Hurricane investigation to seek a FISA order in October 2016 authorizing electronic surveillance redacted targeting page. We found that FBI policy permitted the receipt and use of Steele's election reporting in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation— and we did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that this decision was the result of political bias or other improper considerations. We further found that the FBI was aware of the potential for political influences on Steele's reporting from the outset of receiving it in July 2016, and in part to account for those potential influences, the Crossfire Hurricane team undertook substantial efforts to evaluate the accuracy of the reporting, and the reliability of the sources of Steele's information. We determined that these investigative efforts raised significant questions about the accuracy and reliability of Steele's election reporting. However, as described in Chapters 7 and 8, and earlier in this chapter, we concluded that the FBI did not share these questions about the reporting with department attorneys working on the Carter Page FISA applications and failed to reassess its reliance on Steele's reporting in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. We also found the FBI and Steele held differing views about the nature of their relationship during this time period. Steele had signed CHS paperwork with the FBI following his opening as a CHS in 2013. Accordingly, the FBI considered Steele a CHS bound by certain obligations. Steele, however, considered himself a business person whose firm, not Steele, had a contractual CHS agreement with the FBI and whose election-related work was not undertaken pursuant to that agreement, but instead was conducted solely on behalf of his firm's client, Fusion GPS, not the FBI. This disagreement led to divergent expectations about Steele's conduct, affected the FBI's control over Steele during the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, and ultimately resulted in the FBI formally closing Steele as a CHS, Although, as we discuss later in this chapter, we found the FBI continued its relationship with Steele through OR. A. The FBI's Receipt, Use, and Assessment of Steele's Reporting. As described in Chapter 4, the Crossfire Hurricane team first learned of Steele's reports when they received six of them from Handling Agent 1 in September 2016. The reporting was not the result of any proactive FBI investigative action or any FBI tasking or direction to Steele. Rather, Steele's election reporting was developed at the request of his consulting firm's client, Fusion GPS, and was provided to the FBI with his client's consent. We found that the FBI was aware of the potential for political bias in the Steele election reporting from the outset of obtaining it. Handling Agent 1 told us that when Steele provided him with Report 80 in July 2016 and described his engagement with Fusion GPS, it was obvious to Handling Agent 1 that the request for the research was politically motivated. The supervisory intel analyst explained that he also was aware of the potential for political influence on the Steele election reporting when it became available to the Crossfire Hurricane team in September 2016. We determined that the FBI's decisions to use Steele's information in Crossfire Hurricane and to task him in October 2016 were based on multiple factors unrelated to political considerations, including 1. Steele's prior work as an intelligence professional for a redacted, 2. his expertise on Russia, Three, his past record as an FBI CHS, which included furnishing information concerning the activities of Russian oligarchs and investigative leads involving corruption in FIFA. Four, the assessment of handling Agent 1 that Steele was reliable and had provided information to the FBI in the past that had been corroborated. And five, that Steele's reporting was consistent with the FBI's knowledge at the time of alleged Russian efforts to interfere in the 2016 U.S. elections. The fact that Steele had been retained to conduct political opposition research did not require the FBI, under either department or FBI policies, to ignore the information. The FBI and federal law enforcement regularly receive information from individuals with potentially significant biases and motivations, including drug traffickers, convicted felons, and even terrorists. The FBI is not required to set aside such information, rather, under CHS policy, The FBI is required to critically assess the information in light of any potentially significant biases and motivations. The, quote, FBI must, to the extent practicable, ensure that the information collected from every CHS is accurate and current and not given to the FBI in an effort to distract, mislead, or misdirect FBI organizational or governmental efforts, unquote. Past OIG reviews of the Department's law enforcement components have found that the use of information from such individuals presents significant risks. In the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, as described in details in Chapters 4 and 6 of this report... The team undertook substantial efforts to verify Steele's election reporting, including interviewing Steele, identifying and interviewing certain of Steele's subsources, undertaking CHS and undercover employee UCE meetings with Papadopoulos, Page, and a high-level Trump campaign official, conducting database inquiries, open-source research, and seeking information from other U.S. government intelligence agencies. However, we found that corroboration for the election reporting proved to be elusive for the FBI to identify. FBI officials told us that the singular nature of the reporting, e.g. its recounting of conversations between a small number of persons, made it extremely difficult to verify. We determined that prior to and during the pendency of the FISAs, the FBI was unable to corroborate any of the specific substantive allegations against Carter Page contained in the election reporting and relied on in the FISA applications and was only able to confirm the accuracy of a limited number of circumstantial facts, most of which were in the public domain, such as the dates that Page traveled to Russia, the timing of events, and the occupational positions of individuals referenced in the reports. In addition to the lack of corroboration, we found that the FBI's interviews of Steele, the primary subsource, and a second subsource, and other investigative activity, revealed potentially serious problems with Steele's description of information in his election reports. For example, as noted above, the primary subsource's accounting of events during his her January 2017 interview with the FBI after the filing of the first FISA application and renewal application number one, but before the filing of renewal application two, was not consistent with, and in fact contradicted the allegations in reports 95 and 102 attributed to person one, as well as those in report 94 concerning the meeting between Page and Sitchin. In addition, another subsource told the FBI in August 2017, after the filing of renewal application number three, that information in Steele's election reporting attributable to him her had been exaggerated. Because the subsources themselves could have furnished exaggerated or false information to Steele as well as to the FBI during their interviews, the cause of these inconsistencies remains unknown. According to the supervisory Intel analyst, the FBI ultimately determined that some of the allegations contained in Steele's election reporting were inaccurate, such as the allegation that Manafort used Page as an intermediary, Report 95, and that Michael Cohen had traveled to Prague for meetings with representatives of the Kremlin, Reports 134, 135, 136, and 166. Although the supervisory intel analyst also stated that some of the broader themes in Steele's election reporting were consistent with USIC assessments, such as Russia's desire to sow discord in the Western alliance, he further told us that, As of September 2017, the FBI had corroborated limited information in the Steele election reporting, and much of that information was publicly available. As we described earlier in our analysis, the FBI failed to notify OI, which was working on the Carter Page FISA applications, of the potentially serious problems identified with Steele's election reporting that arose as early as January 2017 through the efforts described above. As previously stated, we believe it was the obligation of the agents who were aware of this information to ensure that OI and the decision makers had the opportunity to consider it both for their own assessment of probable cause and for consideration of whether to include the information in the applications so that the FISA court received a complete and accurate recitation of the relevant facts. Moreover, even as the FBI developed this information, we found no evidence that the Crossfire Hurricane team reconsidered its reliance on the steel reporting in the Pfizer renewal applications. In addition to these investigative efforts by the Crossfire Hurricane team to evaluate steel as a source, the FBI's Validation Management Unit completed a human source validation review of steel in March 2017. We examined VMU's assessment, and in doing so, identified two procedural problems that affected the usefulness of its work product that, if not addressed by the FBI, could negatively affect VMU's future CHS assessments. First, we found instances where information we deemed significant about Steele was not included in his DELTA file and therefore was not available to VMU so that it could be taken into account during VMU's validation review. The information emitted from Steele's Delta file included facts that the Crossfire Hurricane team learned in December 2016 about Steele, relating to his work-related performance in a prior position, and the FBI Transnational Organized Crime Intelligence Unit's concerns about the number of contacts that Steele purportedly had with Russian oligarchs. We have raised issues in prior OIG reviews about the FBI's handling of derogatory CHS information. We believe the FBI needs to assess how to better ensure that derogatory information about its CHSs is included in DELTA and is readily identifiable once added. The FBI should establish enhanced procedures to ensure the completeness of its DELTA files, including for investigations that are operated from FBI headquarters. Second, we determined that it was an error for VMU to omit from the steel Validation Report Its findings, that its assessment of Steele's work for the FBI, failed to reveal corroboration for the election reporting from the FBI and other U.S. government holdings that VMU examined. The supervising unit chief told us that the reason for the omission was VMU's practice of reporting on, quote, what we positively find, unquote, and not what is lacking. As a result, the VMU report acknowledged Steele's contribution to the FBI criminal program, but did not elaborate on his contributions or lack thereof to the counterintelligence program. In Steele's case, VMU's approach misapprehended the reason for CD's request for the validation review. CD's interest in Steele resulted from his election reporting, so any conclusions that VMU reached about it would be of intense interest to CD. According to Preestab, who had previously overseen the work of VMU in his capacity as Deputy Assistant Director in the Directorate of Intelligence, VMU's decision to admit its conclusion that Steele's election reporting was uncorroborated, quote, defeats the whole purpose of us asking VMU to do the validation reporting, unquote. We believe the FBI should evaluate the reporting practices of VMU. Finally, we found that the FBI was aware of the potential for disinformation in the Steele election reporting and, in part to address that issue, made some effort to assess that possibility. However, in view of information we found in FBI files we reviewed and that was available to the Crossfire Hurricane team during the relevant time period, we believe that more should have been done to examine Steele's contacts with intermediaries of Russian oligarchs in order to assess those contacts as potential sources of disinformation that could have influenced Steele's reporting or at a minimum influenced Steele's understanding of events in Russia that furnished context for the analytical judgments he used to evaluate the reporting. We agree with the assessment of Prestap and Evans that this issue warranted more scrutiny than it was afforded. B, the lack of agreement on Steele's status as an FBI CHS and its effect on the Crossfire Hurricane team's relationship with Steele. We determined that from the outset of the FBI's formal relationship with Steele in 2013, when Steele first received FBI CHS admonishments, the FBI and Steele had differing views on the nature of Steele's relationship with the FBI. The FBI considered Steele to be an FBI CHS following his enrollment as a CHS, which was reinforced by Steele's later signing of CHS payment and admonishment paperwork, while Steele considered the CHS documentation to be a business arrangement between him on behalf of his consulting firm and the FBI. As detailed in Chapter 4, we found evidence during our review that supported both the FBI's view and Steele's position. The paperwork enrolling Steele as a CHS in 2013 was the FBI's standard CHS opening documentation, the FBI documented Steele's receipt of CHS admonishments, and the documentation did not reference in any way a relationship between the FBI and Steele's consulting firm. Similarly, on multiple occasions thereafter, Steele signed using the FBI-assigned code name FBI payment forms that were plainly denominated as CHS documentation and that did not reference his consulting firm. However. We also identified material indicating that Steele made known to handling Agent 1 from the outset of their discussions in 2010 that he could not be a CHS for the FBI due to his prior work as a foreign intelligence professional. We also identified a memorandum that the FBI sent to Steele's Redacted prior to opening Steele as a CHS in 2013, explaining that, quote, Mr. Steele is providing the FBI with information, unquote while also stating that the information that the FBI was to obtain would be furnished, quote, primarily through Mr. Steele's privately owned company, unquote, and that the FBI would, quote, treat any material provided as information obtained through a confidential human source, unquote. Similarly, Steele's letter to his redacted, dated at around the same time as the FBI memorandum, informed the redacted that Steele's consulting firm, rather than Steele, was planning to enter into a commercial relationship with the FBI. Given the similarities between the FBI and Steele memoranda to Steele's redacted, the FBI's description of Steele appears crafted to satisfy Steele's concerns and, in our view, is indicative of the understanding reached between Steele and the FBI concerning his status, that both sides would leave unresolved their differing perspectives on the nature of their relationship in order to keep information flowing to the FBI and to ensure that Steele could be paid for any work he performed on behalf of the FBI. This uncertainty about the nature of the relationship had an impact on each side's understanding of Steele's obligations to the FBI in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, particularly after the meeting between the FBI and Steele in early October 2016 about Steele's election reporting. Steele told us that he never viewed himself or his firm as performing election-related work on behalf of the FBI. Rather, Steele considered himself to be functioning as a consultant to a paying client of his firm, which was seeking information about Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. elections from Steele's source network. Steele reported the information to his client Fusion GPS as he acquired it and followed his client's instructions. In contrast... We found that the FBI agents viewed Steele as a former intelligence officer colleague who was an FBI CHS with obligations to the FBI and that the agents displayed insufficient awareness of the priority Steele placed on his business commitments. We concluded that at the outset of Steele's interactions with the FBI in July 2016 regarding his election reporting work, it was clear that Steele was operating as a business person working on behalf of a client of his firm rather than as a CHS for the FBI. Indeed, as detailed in Chapter 4, when Steele met Handling Agent 1 on July 5, 2016, Steele told him about his consulting firm having been retained by Fusion GPS and provided Handling Agent 1 with Report 80. Handling Agent 1 made clear to Steele that he was not working for the FBI on his election assignment and was not being tasked to collect election-related information. We found that Handling Agent 1's caution to Steele was unnecessary from Steele's perspective, as he did not view himself as working on behalf of the FBI to gather election-related information, and he and his client were taking steps to disseminate the election reporting to other parties. Handling Agent 1 told us, however, that from his perspective, he believed his caution to Steele was necessary because he believed Steele was a CHS and his election-related activity would be harmful to Steele's relationship with the FBI. As detailed in Chapter 9 and discussed later in this chapter, beginning in July 2016, Steele had multiple contacts with Department Attorney Bruce Orr about his reports. That same month, Steele first provided his election reporting to the State Department, In August 2016, the FBI received correspondence from members of Congress that described information included in the Steele reports, and in September 2016, Steele met with journalists from The New York Times, The Washington Post, Yahoo News, The New Yorker, and CNN about his work. Steele, in fact, was the Western intelligence source referenced in the September 23 Yahoo News article entitled, U.S. Intel Officials Probe Ties Between Trump Advisor and Kremlin, that described efforts by U.S. intelligence to determine whether Carter Page had opened communication channels with Kremlin officials. The FBI did not ask Steele whether he was a source for the article, nor did it question Steele about the apparent dissemination of his election reporting to other parties. However, the caution provided by handling Agent 1 to Steele at their July 2016 meeting that Steele was not being tasked to collect election-related information changed in early October 2016 when crossfire hurricane investigators met with Steele and attempted to task him as a CHS. During that meeting, the FBI requested that Steele collect quote, three buckets, unquote, of information, which was a small subset of information related to the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. elections. The FBI told Steele that the FBI was willing to compensate him significantly for this information and that he would be paid $15,000 just for attending the October meeting. Additionally, the investigators told us that they orally instructed Steele to report information he gathered in response to these taskings exclusively to the FBI. These taskings and instructions were consistent with the FBI considering Steele to be a CHS going forward. Based on the testimony we obtained from participants in the early October meeting and the documents we reviewed that memorialized it, Steele appears to have made no commitments in response to this FBI request for exclusivity, though we found that he did not expressly reject it either. From the surrounding circumstances, we concluded it was unlikely that Steele agreed to the FBI's request. Steele was a business person with a paying client for whom he had worked on other projects and had committed to assist the client on the election project. Steele told us that any attempt by the FBI to interfere in his assignment from Fusion GPS would have been a showstopper. Case Agent 2 could not recall Steele agreeing to anything during the meeting in early October and acknowledged to OI following the meeting that they needed to be realistic about the prospects of Steele limiting the dissemination of his reporting to the FBI. Nevertheless, we found that following this October meeting, the FBI viewed Steele as a CHS with respect to these taskings and considered him bound by the standard CHS admonishments that he had received initially in 2013 and renewed most recently in January 2016 which committed him to abide by the instructions of the FBI and to provide truthful information to the FBI. Handling Agent One told us that he previously had provided oral instructions to Steele that included not divulging the existence of his relationship with the FBI to others and not sharing with third parties the information he was providing to the FBI, aside from his client paying for the research. However, these oral instructions were not documented in Steele's Delta file, and Steele told us that he did not recall receiving them, but understood that the FBI did not want him to reveal their relationship to others. We also found that the FBI's standard admonishment form does not include an instruction to the CHS not to disclose the existence of the CHS's relationship with the FBI to others absent the FBI's permission. In contrast, Steele told us that from the outset of his relationship with the FBI, the FBI acquiesced in practice to an arrangement that recognized the existence of the two pipelines of information that Steele described to us and which we discussed more fully in Chapter 4. In Steele's view, any FBI admonishments and instructions were relevant only to his FBI assignments, i.e. Pipeline 2 work, but not to his work for his firm's clients that Steele chose to share with the FBI, i.e. Pipeline 1 work. Steele stated that he was free to discuss Pipeline 1 work with his clients and with third parties as necessary without gaining permission from the FBI. Steele told us that the FBI indicated at the meeting in early October that it sought to convert his Pipeline 1 election project for Fusion GPS into a Pipeline 2 project for the FBI and take control of it. Steele also told us that he made it clear during the meeting that it was not going to happen because he was obligated to his client and was not dumping the client in favor of the FBI, but that he also wanted to be as helpful to the FBI as he could. According to Steele, the FBI accepted his position, though they requested that he not share his election reporting with other U.S. government entities or with third-party clients other than Fusion GPS. Steele said he could not recall if he agreed to this FBI request, but believed the request was not resolved at the meeting. FBI attendees at the early October meeting told us that they had no recollection of Steele rejecting their request that he provide information on the three buckets exclusively to the FBI, and if he had rejected their request, it would have been documented. Consistent with their inability in 2013 to reach a shared understanding on Steele's status with the FBI, we concluded that the FBI and Steele in October 2016 appeared to reach a similarly imperfect arrangement that reflected the competing needs and interests of each party. The FBI provided instructions to Steele, but Steele did not make any express commitment to abide by specific terms. The FBI also sought exclusivity for information Steele developed in response to the tasking but we found that Steele did not make an express commitment to the FBI to honor this request. As described in Chapter 6, the FBI closed Steele as a CHS for cause in November 2016 after determining that Steele breached an obligation when he divulged his FBI relationship to a journalist for Mother Jones the month before. This obligation was based upon the oral admonishment the FBI said it previously provided to Steele, an admonishment Steele, said he did not recall receiving or agreeing to, but one that he said reflected an expectation he understood. Steele also told us, in explaining his disclosure to Mother Jones, that he believed the FBI had misled him when Comey notified Congress in late October 2016 that the FBI was reopening the Clinton email investigation, while at the same time, an FBI official was quoted in the New York Times as saying that there was no investigation of Trump or the Trump campaign. We believe that the FBI's decision to close Steele, as well as its failure to press him about his role in the September 2016 Yahoo News story, and his October 2016 visit to the State Department were consequences of the FBI's and Steele's inability to come to a shared understanding on the terms of their relationship. We also believe that the FBI allowed the arrangement with Steele to exist because its expectations about Steele's behavior were heavily influenced by his background as a former intelligence officer and his past assistance to the FBI in that capacity with insufficient focus on Steele's current business interests and obligations even though Steele disclosed them to the FBI. Indeed, as we describe in the next section, we found that even after the FBI closed Steele as a CHS in November 2016 for cause and as a result under FBI policy, should have ceased its contact with Steele absent exceptional circumstances or reopening him as a CHS, the FBI continued its relationship by allowing Steele to regularly provide information to the FBI through a senior department attorney, Bruce Orr, with whom Steele was friendly. Four, issues relating to Department Attorney Bruce Orr. In this section, we analyze the interactions Department Attorney Bruce Orr had with Christopher Steele, Simpson, the FBI, and the State Department during the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. We also analyze Orr's interactions with Department attorneys and FBI officials concerning the Department's criminal investigation of Paul Manafort. At the time of these activities, Orr was an Associate Deputy Attorney General in ODAG and the Director of the Organized Crime and Drug Enforcement Task Force. As described more fully in Chapter 9, at about the same time that Steele was engaging with the FBI on his election reporting, Steele was also sharing his reporting with Orr, with whom he had a pre-existing, professional, and friendly relationship since at least 2007. Beginning in July 2016, Steele had contacted Orr on multiple occasions to discuss information from Steele's election reports. At Steele's suggestion, Orr also met in August 2016 with Simpson, the owner of Fusion GPS, to discuss Steele's reports. At the time, Orr's wife, Nellie Orr, worked at Fusion GPS as an independent contractor. Orr had a second meeting with Simpson in December 2016, at which time Simpson gave Orr a thumb drive containing numerous Steele election reports. On October 18, 2016, three days before the first FISA application was submitted to the FISA court, and after speaking with Steele that morning, Orr requested a meeting with and that same day met with McCabe to share Steele's and Simpson's information with him. Thereafter, Orr met with members of the Crossfire Hurricane team 13 times between November 21, 2016 and May 15, 2017 concerning his contacts with Steele and Simpson. All 13 meetings occurred after the FBI had closed Steele as a CHS for disclosing information to Mother Jones and, except for the November 21 meeting, each meeting was initiated at Orr's request. Orr told us he did not recall the FBI asking him to take action regarding Steele or Simpson, but Orr also stated that, quote, the general instruction was to let the FBI know when I got information from Steele, unquote. At two of these meetings, both in December 2016 after Nellie Orr had left Fusion GPS, Orr provided the FBI with open-source research Nellie Orr conducted on Manafort while working at Fusion GPS. The Crossfire Hurricane team memorialized each meeting with Orr as an interview using an FBI FD-302 form. In addition to the FBI, Orr met with senior State Department officials in November 2016 to discuss State Department efforts to investigate Russian influence in foreign elections. On this and several other days, Orr had separate discussions with State Department Deputy Assistant Secretary Kathleen Kavalak about Steele and his election information, specifically to obtain relevant information that he could share with the FBI. Department leadership, including ORS supervisors in ODAG and ODAG officials who reviewed and approved the Carter Page FISA applications, were unaware of ORS meetings with FBI officials Steele, Simpson, and the State Department until after Congress requested information from the department regarding ORS activities in late November 2017. In addition, shortly after the U.S. elections in November 2016, or participated in several meetings with Deputy Assistant Attorney General Bruce Swartz, Chief of the Fraud Section Andrew Weissman, and Counsel to the Criminal Division Assistant Attorney General Zainab Ahmad regarding the department's money laundering investigation of Manafort. Two of these meetings included FBI officials Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. The FBI opened the Manafort money laundering investigation in January 2016 before the opening of Crossfire Hurricane and before Manafort joined the Trump campaign, and the case was being led in 2016 by prosecutors from the Criminal Division's Money Laundering and Asset Recovery Section, MLARS. Orr and the three CRM officials he met with did not have supervisory authority over the MLARS criminal investigation, and they did not advise their supervisors in ODAG and CRM MLARS prosecutors of the meetings. However, we did not find evidence that these meetings progressed beyond discussion into any specific actions that interfered with the MLARS investigation or department leadership's oversight of that matter. In light of these activities, we consider the following issues addressed below: One. Whether Orr's interactions with Steele, Simpson, the FBI, and State Department violated department policy or resulted in any specific performance failures; two whether the FBI's interactions with OR concerning Steele and Simpson after Steele was closed as an FBI CHS violated Department or FBI policy; Three. whether Nellie Orr's work for Fusion GPS implicated any ethical rules applicable to OR, and four, whether the meetings between OR, CRM officials, and the FBI regarding in the MLARS investigation violated department policy or resulted in any specific performance failures. A, Bruce Orr's interactions with Steele Simpson, the State Department, and the FBI. We did not identify a specific department policy prohibiting Orr from meeting with Steele Simpson or the State Department and providing the information he learned from those meetings to the FBI. Further, we found no evidence that the FBI expressly requested that Orr obtain information from Steele or anyone else on the FBI's behalf. However, as described in chapter nine, Orr told us that the general instruction he received from the FBI was to let them know when I got information from Steele. Similarly, SSA 1 told us that Orr likely left their initial November 21, 2016 meeting with the impression that he should contact the FBI if Steele contacted him, which is what Orr did. In this regard, we concluded that Orr committed consequential errors in judgment by, one, failing to advise his direct supervisors or the DAG that he was communicating with Steele and Simpson and then requesting meetings with the FBI's deputy director and crossfire hurricane team on matters that were outside his areas of responsibility and two, making himself a witness in the investigation by having direct communications with Steele about his reporting and activities and providing Steele's information to the FBI. We found that Orr's failure to advise his supervisors result in Orr being aware of relevant information that was not made known to department officials, thereby interfering with those officials' supervisory responsibility for the Crossfire Hurricane investigation and the Carter Page FISA applications. As described in Chapter 8, Yates Bente and Rosenstein told us that they had no knowledge at the time they reviewed and approved the FISA applications that Orr had provided the FBI with information related to the Crossfire Hurricane investigation and that was relevant to the FISA applications. Other ODAG officials who reviewed one or more of the applications told us that they were also unaware of ORS activities at the time, including the Associate Deputy Attorney General responsible for ODAG's national security portfolio who interacted with NSD and OI officials on the FISA applications and was aware of their efforts described in Chapter 5 to evaluate the Steele information being relied upon to support probable cause. Although we found no information suggesting that Orr knew about any of the FISA applications before they were filed by failing to advise his supervisors of his interactions with Steele, Simpson, and the FBI, Orr deprived those supervisors of their ability to ensure that the ODAG officials working on the applications were made aware of information relevant to evaluating the Steele reporting in the applications. It also deprived ODAG officials of the opportunity to ensure that NSD and OI were made aware of the information that Orr knew from his steel interactions, so that NSD and OI could consider whether to include the information in the next FISA application, though we believe that the FBI case agent should have been the first to advise NSD and OI of Orr's activities. As described in Chapter 8. The late discovery of Orr's interviews with the FBI prompted NSD to submit a Rule 13 letter to the court over a year after the final FISA orders were issued to inform the court, among other things, of information that Orr had provided to the FBI but that the FBI had failed to inform NSD and OI about, including that Steele was desperate that Donald Trump not get elected and was passionate about him not being the U.S. president. Additionally, as described in earlier chapters, beginning in early 2017, Bente and later Rosenstein requested multiple briefings on the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, which included, among many topics, updates on the FBI's continued efforts to assess Steele and his information. Because Orr did not advise anyone in ODAG about his activities, Bente, Rosenstein, and the other ODAG officials briefed into Crossfire Hurricane had no idea that one of the senior attorneys on their staff, with no responsibility over counterintelligence investigations, had made himself a witness in the investigation by having direct communications with Steele about his reporting and activities and initiating contact with the Crossfire Hurricane team to provide the FBI with information he received from Steele as well as information he received separately from Simpson, Cavalek, and Nellie Orr. Further, we found that Orr's failure to advise his supervisors of his activities deprived the DAG and senior ODAG officials of the ability to decide for themselves the prudential question of of whether to have an ODAG attorney act as a conduit between a closed FBI CHS and the FBI on matters relating to an open investigation. The opportunity to consider that question for themselves was particularly important here, given the connections to a high-priority, politically sensitive investigation and the involvement of a closed CHS with ties to a political party and candidate for president and indirect connections to the ODAG attorney's spouse. Former Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General Matthew Axelrod, Orr's direct supervisor in 2016, told us that he would have expected to know about Orr's communications with Steele and the FBI. Axelrod stated that if ODAG officials had known, they would have questioned Orr's involvement and determined whether the FBI had the ability to pull him out of acting as a conduit between Steele and the FBI. He said that he thought it, unlikely that we would have been comfortable with Orr continuing to play that role. Axelrod's immediate successor, former acting PADAG James Kroll, who supervised Orr in 2017, told us that he was flabbergasted when he learned of Orr's interactions with the FBI regarding Steele. According to Kroll, Orr should have informed ODAG officials of his relationship with Steele and Simpson and his interactions with the FBI, especially after Rosenstein appointed the special counsel and began directly supervising the investigation because a potential fact witness was on Rosenstein's staff. Kroll told us that he would have taken steps to eliminate any appearance that Orr was involved in ODAG's oversight of the investigation. We found that while no department or ODAG policy specifically prohibited Orr's activities, Orr was clearly cognizant of his responsibility to inform his supervisors of his interactions with Steele, the FBI, and State Department. Indeed, Orr acknowledged to the OIG that the possibility that he would have been told by his supervisors to stop having such contact may have factored into his decision not to tell them about it. Precisely because of this possibility and the reasons more fully described above, we concluded that Orr committed consequential errors in judgment by failing to advise his direct supervisors or the DAG that he was communicating with Steele, Simpson, and the FBI on matters related to the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, and that this performance failure had a negative impact on the investigation and ODAG's fulfillment of its own management responsibilities. We are referring our finding to the Department's Office of Professional Responsibility for any action it deems appropriate. We are also providing our finding to OR's current supervisors and CRM for any action they deem appropriate. B. FBI Interactions with OR Concerning Steele and Simpson As described in Chapter 2, the FBI's CHS Policy Guide provides guidance to agents concerning contacts with CHS's after they have been closed for cause, as was the case with Steele as of November 1, 2016. According to the CHSPG, a handling agent must not initiate contact with or respond to contacts from a former CHS who has been closed for cause absent exceptional circumstances that are approved in advance wherever possible by an SSA. Where there is contact with the CHS following closure, whether or not for cause, new information may be documented to a closed CHS file. However, the CHSPG requires the reopening of the CHS if the relationship between the FBI and the CHS is expected to continue beyond the initial contact or debriefing. Reopening requires high levels of supervisory approval, including a finding that the benefits of reopening the CHS outweigh the risks. In this instance, we found that the FBI did not initiate direct contact with Steele after his closure on November 1, 2016. However, the FBI did respond to numerous contacts made by Steele to the FBI through Orr. Orr himself was not a direct witness to the facts and circumstances that were the focus of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Rather, his purpose in communicating with the FBI was to pass along information from Steele. Further, although Orr initiated his meetings with the Crossfire Hurricane team, as noted above, the team gave Orr the impression that he should contact them in the event he had additional contact with Steele. While the FBI's CHS policy does not explicitly address indirect contact between an FBI agent and a closed CHS, we concluded that the FBI's repeated acceptance of information from Steele through a conduit OR was equivalent to to responding to a contact from steel and therefore should have triggered the CHS policy requiring that such contact occur only after an SSA determines that exceptional circumstances exist. Here, the SSAs on the Crossfire Hurricane team attended the meetings with OR and served as OR's points of contact, and in this manner approved the contact. However, we found no evidence that the SSAs made a considered judgment that exceptional circumstances existed for the repeated contact. In the absence of such a circumstance, the FBI's re-engagement of Steele did not fully comply with the FBI's CHS policy. In addition, the Crossfire Hurricane team memorialized the meetings with OR and the information OR provided in FD-302 forms serialized to the case file. Although the information was not separately documented in Steele's closed CHS file, the guidance regarding documentation is discretionary. New information may be documented to a closed CHS file. We believe the FBI should make such documentation mandatory so that the CHS file contains all relevant information about the CHS. As noted above, the CHSPG contemplates the reopening of the CHS if the relationship between the FBI and the CHS is expected to continue beyond the initial contact or debriefing, which helps to ensure that high-level supervisors weigh the risks presented by re-engagement with the CHS and that operational assessments of the CHS are undertaken. Although the FBI met with Orr on 13 occasions and accepted information that Orr received from Steele, the FBI never assessed whether to reopen Steele as a CHS. As described in Chapter 9, there were differing views about whether the information Orr was providing had any investigative value. SSAs on the investigation also told us that they had some concern at the time that continuing to engage with Orr regarding his interactions with Steele was out of the norm and a bad idea. Although the FBI did not have a direct relationship with Steele after November 1, 2016, we believe the use of of or as a conduit between the two created a relationship by proxy that should have triggered a supervisory decision early in the process about whether to reopen steel as a CHS or discontinue accepting information indirectly through or. We concluded that not obtaining supervisory review was inconsistent with the CHS policy's intent to have a higher-level official determine whether the exceptional circumstances that an SSA believes are present to authorize an initial contact with a closed CHS warrant reopening of the CHS. We found that the Crossfire Hurricane team did not consider OR providing the FBI with information from Steele to be a re-engagement of their relationship with Steele. Rather, the team viewed Orr as just another stream of reporting. On the other hand, Priestap told us that he was not aware of the full extent of Orr's communications with Steele and the Crossfire Hurricane team, and that the number of times Orr provided the FBI with information from Steele would have raised red flags for him. We believe that additional policy guidance would be helpful to clarify considerations and requirements that apply to the third-party context. Accordingly, we recommend that the FBI revise its CHS policy to explicitly address the situation that occurred here, namely the steps that should be followed before and after accepting information from a closed CHS indirectly through a third party and the considerations that should be taken into account before doing so. Further, we recommend that the CHS policy be clarified to require that contact with a closed CHS be documented in the CHS file. C. Ethics Issues Raised by Nellie Orr's Former Employment with Fusion GPS Fusion GPS employed Nellie Orr as an independent contractor from October 2015 to September 2016. We considered whether Bruce Orr complied with his financial disclosure reporting obligations under 5 CFR Part 2634 related to Nellie Orr's employment. On his annual financial disclosure forms covering calendar years 2015 and 2016, Orr listed Nellie Orr as an independent contractor and reported her income from that work on the form. We determined that five CFR, part 2634, which sets forth the financial disclosure rules for executive branch employees and the supplemental guidance from the Office of Government Ethics, OGE, did not require Orr to list on the form the specific organizations such as Fusion GPS, that retained and paid Nellie Orr as an independent contractor during the reporting period. We further noted that consistent with OGE practice, Orr's financial disclosure form, which listed Nellie Orr as an independent contractor and reported her total income, but not the specific sources of the income, was reviewed and approved for filing by the ODAG and department ethics officers before being submitted to OGE. Accordingly, we determined that Orr complied with his financial disclosure reporting obligations. We separately considered whether the standards of ethical conduct for employees of the executive branch required Orr to recuse himself from participating in activity related to the Crossfire Hurricane investigation because of Nellie Orr's prior work for Fusion GPS as an independent contractor. Specifically, 5 CFR subsection 2635.502A, provides that an employee should not participate in a matter unless Agency Ethics Council authorizes participation, quote, where an employee knows that a particular matter involving specific parties is likely to have a direct and predictable effect on the financial interest of a member of his household, and where the employee determines that the circumstances would cause a reasonable person with knowledge of the relevant facts to question his impartiality in the matter, Section 402, B1 defines direct and predictable effect as, quote, a close causal link between any decision or action to be taken in the matter and any expected effect of the matter on the financial interest, unquote. We found that Nellie Orr's relationship with Fusion GPS ceased on September 24, 2016, which was prior to Orr's meeting with McCabe on October 18, 2016 as well as all 13 of his meetings with the Crossfire Hurricane team, the first of which was on November 21, 2016. Accordingly, by those dates, Orr's activities could not have had a direct and predictable effect on his or his wife's financial interests. The federal ethics rules did not require that Orr obtain Department Ethics Council approval before engaging with the FBI in connection with the Crossfire Hurricane matter. The federal ethics rules provide further in Section 502A2 that an employee, quote, who is concerned that circumstances other than those specifically described in this section would raise a question regarding his impartiality should use the process described in this section, namely to consult with department ethics officials to determine whether he should or should not participate in a particular matter, unquote. However, while OGE has made clear that employees are encouraged to use this process, it also has stated that, quote, The election, not to use that process, should not be characterized as an ethical lapse, unquote. OGE 94 x 101 letter to a department acting secretary, March 30, 1994. See also OGE 01X8, letter to a designated agency ethics official, August 23, 2001. While OGE guidelines established that OR did not commit a formal ethical violation, We nevertheless concluded that Orr, an experienced department attorney and a member of the SES, should have been more cognizant of the appearance concerns created by Nellie Orr's employment with Fusion GPS and availed himself of the process described in Section 502A. We found that his failure to take this step displayed a lapse in judgment. D. Meetings involving Orr, CRM officials, and the FBI regarding the MLARS investigation. As described in more detail in Chapter 9, on November 16, 2016, Orr advised CRM officials Bruce Swartz and Zainab Ahmad of information, quote, about Paul Manafort and Trump and possible Russian influence that Orr was getting from Steele and Glenn Simpson. This discussion led to subsequent meetings with them and Andrew Weissman about the pre-existing MLARS investigation of Manafort and whether the fraud section could move the investigation forward. At the time of these meetings, Swartz and a CRM deputy AAG and Weissman was the chief of the fraud section. During this period, Ahmad was initially counsel to the criminal division AAG and then became an acting CRM deputy AAG. None of these CRM officials had supervisory responsibility over the MLARS investigation. Ahmad and Weissman did not have prior direct involvement in the investigation, Swartz had assisted MLARS with gathering evidence from abroad and therefore had extensive prior knowledge and involvement with the investigation, but was not responsible for investigative decisions. At Orr's suggestion, Orr, Swartz, and Ahmad also met with FBI officials Peter Strzok and Lisa Page in December 2016 to discuss the MLARS investigation because Orr knew by that time that the FBI's CD was working on a separate matter involving Manafort. On January 31, 2017, one day after Yates was removed as Deputy Attorney General, Ahmad, after consulting with Swartz and Weissman, called a second meeting, citing to quote, a few criminal division-related developments, unquote. None of the attendees of the meeting could explain to us what the criminal division-related developments were, and we did not find any. However, We are not aware of any information indicating that these discussions resulted in any actions taken or not taken in the MLARS investigation, and ultimately the investigation remained in MLARS until it was transferred to the special counsel's office in May 2017. MLARS officials were not invited to these meetings or informed of them. The then chief of MLARS, Kendall Day, and the acting chief who replaced him in January 2017 Both told us that they were unaware at the time that these CRM officials and Orr were discussing the MLRS investigation and engaging with the FBI. Day told us that when he learned in March or April 2017 that Swartz, Orr, Ahmad, and Weissman were collectively interested in the Manafort investigation, he met with Swartz and Ahmad and told them that their unusual level of interest could create a perception that the department was investigating Manafort for inappropriate reasons. In addition, Orr, Swartz, Ahmad, and Weissman told us that they did not advise their supervisors of the meetings, and senior CRM and ODAG officials told us that they were unaware of them. Further, Swartz told us that he specifically did not advise political appointees leading the criminal division of the meetings. According to Swartz, he did not believe at the time that he needed to advise political appointees because the meetings had not resulted in any steps being taken in the MLARS investigation and by not informing them that he was keeping the MLRS investigation from being politicized and protecting the department from allegations that its MLRS investigation of Manafort was politically motivated. Swartz stated that he would have informed his political superiors if any decision to take action had been made as a consequence of the meetings. Weissman told us that he thought not telling department leadership was an incorrect judgment call, but could not recall if he expressed this view to Swartz or Ahmad. The former senior department leaders we interviewed expressed serious concern about Swartz's assertion that not informing department leadership about case-related investigative activities somehow protected the department. For example, after Yates learned during her OIG interview of the meetings involving Swartz or Ahmad and Weissman, she told us that a decision not to advise political appointees troubled her because the department does not operate that way. Yates said that there is not a career department of justice, and a political appointee's department of justice, it's all one DOJ. Former CRM Assistant Attorney General Leslie Caldwell told us that a decision to not advise political appointees of meetings they were having relating to the MLARS investigation to avoid politicizing it was inappropriate and showed poor judgment because it, quote, suggested a lack of trust or a lack of confidence in the political appointee, and that seemed a little bit Paranoid to her, unquote. We did not identify any department policies prohibiting internal discussions about a pending investigation among officials not assigned to a matter, or between those officials and senior officials from the FBI. However, we were troubled by the testimony more fully described in Chapter 9 that there was a deliberate decision not to inform the political appointees or the acting AAG of CRM after the change in presidential administrations, who was a career department employee of those discussions in order to insulate the MLARS investigation from becoming politicized. We concluded that the decision to intentionally withhold information from the Department's leadership in both the prior and current administrations in the absence of concerns of potential wrongdoing or misconduct fundamentally misconstrued who is ultimately responsible and accountable for the Department's work. We agree with the concerns expressed to us by Yates and Caldwell. Department leaders cannot fulfill their management responsibilities and be held accountable for the department's actions if subordinates intentionally withhold information from them in such circumstances. The department's leadership, which is nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate, is ultimately answerable within the executive branch to Congress and in the courts for the investigations, prosecutions, and other activities of the department, whether politically sensitive or routine. Ultimately, however, we did not find evidence that the meetings between Orr and CRM officials Swartz, Ahmad, and Weissman, amongst themselves and with FBI officials Strzok, Lisa Page, and Acting Section Chief 1, progressed beyond discussion to any specific actions that interfered with the MLARS investigation or department leadership's oversight of that matter. Five, the use of other confidential human sources and undercover employees and compliance with applicable policies. In this section, we analyze the FBI's use of CHS's, other than Steele, and undercover employees in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, and discuss whether the FBI placed any CHS's or UCE's within the Trump campaign, or tasked any CHS's or UCE's to report on the Trump campaign. Additionally, we analyze whether the Crossfire Hurricane team's use of such individuals complied with Department and FBI policies. We also discuss SSA-1's participation on behalf of the FBI in a strategic intelligence briefing given by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to candidate Trump and his national security advisors, including Michael Flynn, and a separate strategic intelligence briefing given to candidate Clinton and her national security advisors, and the observations that SSA-1 made of Flynn and others as a result of his participation in those briefings. Overall, we determined that the Crossfire Hurricane team tasked several CHSs and UCEs during the 2016 presidential campaign, which resulted in multiple interactions with Carter Page and Papadopoulos, both during and after the time they were affiliated with the Trump campaign, and an interaction with a high-level Trump campaign official who was not a subject of the investigation. The Crossfire Hurricane team also attempted to contact Papadopoulos through additional CHSs, but those efforts were unsuccessful. We further determined that the Crossfire Hurricane team received general information about Page and Manafort from another FBI CHS, but that this CHS had no further role in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Additionally, we identified several individuals who had either a connection to candidate Trump or a role in the Trump campaign and were also FBI CHSs who the Crossfire Hurricane team could have tasked but did not. We found no evidence that the FBI placed any CHSs or UCEs within the Trump campaign or tasked any CHSs or UCEs to report on the Trump campaign. We also did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the FBI's decision to use CHSs to interact with Page, Papadopoulos, and the high-level Trump campaign official in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. We concluded that the investigative activities undertaken by the Crossfire Hurricane team involving CHSs and UCEs received the necessary FBI approvals and complied with the applicable department and FBI policies. However, we also determined that neither the department's nor the FBI's policies required the FBI to notify the department of these investigative activities, and we are unaware of any department official having had advanced knowledge of the FBI's plans to consensually monitor conversations between FBI CHSs and Page, Papadopoulos, and a high-level official of the Trump campaign. We concluded that Department and FBI policies do not, in these circumstances, provide sufficient oversight and accountability for investigative activity that has the potential to gather sensitive information involving protected First Amendment activity. For example, prior to the operation involving the high-level campaign official, SSA 1, told the OIG that he did not remember having a plan in place in case the FBI recorded information that was politically sensitive. We believe that notification to department officials in such situations would help to ensure that the FBI has plans sufficiently to address the incidental collection of political information and make an assessment prior to that collection of whether the potential impact on constitutionally protected activity outweighs any potential investigative benefit. We therefore make several recommendations to strengthen department and FBI CHS policies to require department consultation at a minimum when tasking a CHS to interact with officials in national political campaigns, to provide additional guidance to FBI handling agents about how to document the affiliations of CHSs who on their own participate in political organizations or activities and then voluntarily provide information to the FBI, and to provide FBI supervisors with the information necessary to assess whether to close a CHS or designate that individual as a sensitive source depending on the level of CHS participation in political organizations or activities. E. Use of CHSs and UCEs. The agents, analysts, and supervisors assigned to the Crossfire Hurricane investigation told us that CHSs are routinely used in FBI counterintelligence investigations, and they viewed CHS operations as one of the best methods available to quickly obtain information about the predicating allegations in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation while preventing information about the nature and existence of the investigation from becoming public and potentially impacting the presidential election. In Chapter 10, we described multiple CHS operations undertaken by the Crossfire Hurricane team, including the tasking of CHSs and UCEs during the 2016 presidential campaign. These investigative activities included numerous CHS interactions with Page and Papadopoulos to collect information about the predicating allegations, while both were Trump campaign advisors and after they were no longer affiliated with the Trump campaign. In addition, an FBI CHS was tasked to interact with a high-level Trump campaign official who was not a subject of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation in an effort to gather information potentially relevant to the predicating allegations. We also determined that the FBI attempted to contact Papadopoulos through additional CHSs, but those attempted contacts did not lead to any operational activity. In our review, we also learned that in 2016, there were several other individuals who had either a connection to candidate Trump or a role in the Trump campaign and were also FBI CHSs. Some of these sources were known to and available for use by the Crossfire Hurricane team during the 2016 presidential campaign. The Crossfire Hurricane team received general information about Page and Manafort from one such CHS, but that CHS did not further assist the Crossfire Hurricane team in any way. We found no evidence that any members of the Crossfire Hurricane team ever suggested inserting the CHS into the Trump campaign to gather investigative information. SSA 1 told the OIG, quote, that was not what we were looking to do, unquote. For a different CHS who held a position in the Trump campaign, we learned that the Crossfire Hurricane team decided not to task the CHS, and the FBI handling agent minimized contact with the CHS because of the CHS's campaign involvement. The Crossfire Hurricane team also made no use of an FBI CHS who had a potential opportunity for a private meeting with candidate Trump. That CHS's handling agent told the OIG that he quote, would certainly not be tasking a source to go attend some private meeting with a candidate, any candidate for president or for other office to collect the information on what that candidate is saying, Unquote. Although the Crossfire Hurricane team was aware of these CHSs during the 2016 presidential campaign, we were told that operational use of these CHSs would not have furthered the investigation, and so these CHSs were not tasked with any investigative activities. Moreover, SSA1 told the OIG that the members of the Crossfire Hurricane team, quote, never had any intent, never any desire to collect campaign or privileged information with regard to the presidential election, unquote. We also learned of two other FBI CHSs, one of whom held a position redacted and the other of whom redacted. We found no evidence that the Crossfire Hurricane team ever knew about the first CHS who held a position redacted and accordingly, no evidence that the first CHS was tasked to do anything as part of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. We found that the Crossfire Hurricane team did not learn about the second CHS until months after the election. In 2017, the Crossfire Hurricane team learned about the second CHS after the CHS voluntarily provided to the CHS's handling agent after the campaign was over and prompted by events in the media, redacted. And the handling agent forwarded the material through his supervisor and FBI headquarters to the Crossfire Hurricane team. The team determined that redacted. The handling agent told us when he subsequently informed the Crossfire Hurricane team that the CHS had redacted, An intelligence analyst assigned to the Crossfire Hurricane team asked the handling agent to collect redacted from the CHS, which the handling agent did. We learned that the Crossfire Hurricane team determined that there was not anything significant in this redacted and never tasked the CHS to interact with anyone redacted. While we found that no action was taken by the Crossfire Hurricane team in response to receiving redacted, we nevertheless were concerned to learn that the handling agent for the second CHS redacted that the CHS had voluntarily provided into the FBI's files, and we promptly notified the FBI upon learning that they were still being maintained in the FBI's files. We further concluded that because the CHS's handling agent did not understand the CHS's political involvement, No assessment was performed by the source's handling agent or his supervisors, none of whom were members of the Crossfire Hurricane team, to determine whether the CHS required redesignation as a sensitive source or should have been closed during the pendency of the campaign. To address this issue, we recommended the FBI provide additional guidance to handling agents concerning their responsibility to inquire whether the CHS participates in the types of groups or activities that would bring the CHS within the definition of a sensitive source. Handling agents should document and update as needed those affiliations and any others voluntarily provided to them by the CHS in the source opening communication, the sensitive categories portion of each CHS's quarterly supervisory source report, the life changes portion of CHS contact reports, or as otherwise directed by the FBI so that the FBI can assess the appropriateness of continuing to use a CHS particularly where the CHS is participating in political organizations or activities and then voluntarily providing information to the FBI. Finally, we found no evidence that the Crossfire Hurricane team tasked any CHSs or UCEs to join the Trump campaign, sent any CHSs or UCEs to campaign offices or to campaign events to collect information for the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, or tasked any CHSs or UCEs to report on the Trump campaign. F. Compliance with FBI policies. We determined that the Crossfire Hurricane investigation was opened before any CHSs or UCEs were tasked to interact with any members of the Trump campaign. Once the Crossfire Hurricane investigation was opened, the use of CHSs and UCEs was authorized under the AG guidelines and the DIOG, which permit use of All lawful investigative methods in the conduct of a full investigation, including specifically CHS use and recruitment, consensual monitoring of communications, and undercover operations. As noted previously, the Crossfire Hurricane investigation was designated a SIM under DIOG subsection 10.1.2 because the FBI determined that any potential subjects of the investigation would be prominent members of a political campaign. The same designation was assigned to the four individual cases because the FBI determined that the individuals identified as subjects were prominent in the Trump campaign. However, the CHS operations undertaken in Crossfire Hurricane did not require heightened review by FBI supervisors or department approval because, under DIOG, the operations did not involve the use of sensitive sources. Undisclosed participation, UDP, in political organizations, or sensitive monitoring circumstances. As discussed in Chapter 2, the DIOG requires SAC approval to open a sensitive source. SAC approval with notice to the Sensitive Operations Review Committee, a panel that includes Department AAGs or their designees for UDP in a political organization or other organization exercising First Amendment rights, and Department approval for a CHS to record conversations in a sensitive monitoring circumstance. We determined that none of these approval requirements applied to the investigative activities undertaken by the Crossfire Hurricane team. FBI policy defines sensitive sources to include CHSs who are political candidates or who are prominent within a domestic political organization. None of the CHSs tasked in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation fell within these categories because none of the CHSs were themselves candidates or prominent members of a campaign. The agents, analysts, and supervisors in the Crossfire Hurricane team told the OIG that that they did not attempt to recruit or use members of the Trump campaign as CHSs, and we found no evidence suggesting otherwise. However, our interviews with FBI handling agents revealed significant confusion over the meaning of the phrase prominent within a domestic political organization, with some agents interpreting that phrase as limited to a person running for office, and other agents questioning whether a presidential primary campaign was a domestic political organization. Accordingly, we recommend that the FBI establish guidance to better define this phrase, so that agents understand the meaning of this phrase as it is used in FBI policy. FBI policies concerning undisclosed participation apply when anyone acting on behalf of the FBI to include CHSs and UCEs becomes a member of or participates in the activity of an organization without disclosing to the organization their FBI affiliation. These policies likewise did not apply to the Crossfire Hurricane case because we found no evidence that any of the FBI CHSs or UCEs used in Crossfire Hurricane joined or participated in the Trump campaign at all and certainly not at the direction of or otherwise on behalf of the FBI. During our review, this issue briefly arose because we learned that one of the subjects of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation had invited an FBI CHS to join the Trump campaign prior to the opening of the investigation. However, we found that when the Crossfire Hurricane team learned about this invitation following the investigation's opening, the team did not consider using this opportunity to engage in UDP. Rather, every FBI witness we interviewed said that they would not have done so even if the FBI CHS had actually wanted to join the campaign. Strzok's reaction to the possibility, quote, oh God, no, absolutely not, unquote, And the reaction case agent two attributed to the OGC attorneys, no freaking way, were indicative of the reactions we heard from all members of the Crossfire Hurricane team when we questioned them about whether they considered the possibility of inserting an FBI CHS into the Trump campaign to collect investigative information. None of the documents we reviewed indicated that any member of the Crossfire Hurricane team ever advocated for that type of investigative activity. The use of CHSs and UCEs by the Crossfire Hurricane team also did not present a sensitive monitoring circumstance as defined by the AG guidelines and the DIOG. As described in these policies, a sensitive monitoring circumstance arises when the FBI seeks to record communications with officials who have already been elected or appointed, such as members of Congress, federal judges, or high-ranking members of the executive branch. The AG guidelines and the DIOG do not require prior notice to, or approval by, the Department when the FBI uses a CHS to consensually monitor communications with candidates for political office or prominent officials within their campaigns. Because the CHS operations conducted during the Crossfire Hurricane investigation did not implicate the FBI's policies regarding sensitive sources, UDP, or sensitive monitoring circumstances, Department or high-level FBI notice or approval was not required for such operations. Under the CHSPG, which vests SSAs with daily oversight responsibility for CHSs in routine investigations, approval at the SSA level was sufficient. The only relevant exception for the Crossfire Hurricane investigation were counterintelligence CHS extraterritorial operations, which required approval by an FBI assistant director and which we found received approval by pre We determined that the day-to-day decisions concerning whether and how to use CHSs and UCEs in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation were made by the investigative team with the approval of SSA-1 as required by FBI policy. We further found that SSA-1 briefed the FBI supervisors in his chain of command, Stroke, Prestep, and on one occasion McCabe, about the CHS operations planned by the investigative team. Prestep told the OIG that he remembered knowing about and approving of all of the CHS operations in Crossfire Hurricane, even though review and approval at this level was not required by the DIOG for operations conducted within the United States. We further concluded that the use of CHSs and UCEs in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation complied with the DIOG's requirement that investigative activities be conducted for an authorized purpose. As discussed previously, the Crossfire Hurricane investigation was opened for an authorized purpose, which means, quote, to detect, obtain information about, or prevent or protect against federal crimes or threats to the national security, or to collect foreign intelligence, unquote. The DIOG also provides that the underlying purpose of the investigative activity, quote, may not be solely to monitor the exercise of constitutional rights, unquote. While the investigative activity in this case clearly implicated First Amendment protected activity, we did not find evidence that members of the Crossfire Hurricane team attempted to use CHSs or UCEs for the sole purpose of monitoring activities protected by the First Amendment. Rather, we determined that these investigative activities were focused on obtaining information that would enable investigators to better assess the predicating information. Indeed, a significant amount of the information gathered during these operations was inconsistent with the Steele election reporting and should have been provided to department attorneys but was not. For example, our review of CHS interactions with Page indicated that they were initiated to obtain information relevant to the allegations under investigation. Page was asked about his ongoing ties to Russia, contacts with Russian intelligence officials, Views on media reports linking the Trump campaign and in Russia. Involvement in the committee responsible for the Republican platform language concerning aiding Ukraine. And views on the possibility of an October surprise if the Trump campaign could access information obtained by the Russians from the DNC emails. Similarly, CHS operations aimed at Papadopoulos were linked to the allegations under investigation at Crossfire Hurricane. For example, when Papadopoulos was asked about the Trump campaign, the questions were focused on obtaining information about other Crossfire Hurricane subjects, Page and Flynn, or determining whether the Trump campaign benefited from, or anyone in the Trump campaign had knowledge of, Russian assistance or the WikiLeaks release of information that was damaging to the Clinton campaign. Papadopoulos's response that the Trump campaign was not, quote, advocating for this type of activity because at the end of the day it's illegal, unquote, clearly pertain to the issues under investigation and, as discussed elsewhere in this report, should have been provided to the department's attorneys for evaluation as part of the FISA applications. Likewise, the high-level Trump campaign official was asked about the role of three crossfire hurricane subjects, Page, Papadopoulos, and Manafort, in the Trump campaign, and also asked about allegations in public reports concerning Russian interference in the 2016 elections, the campaign's response to ideas featured in Page's Moscow speech, and the possibility of an October surprise. These areas of inquiry were focused on the allegations under investigation in an effort to elicit pertinent information. However, the CHS and the high-level campaign official redacted. We found that the Crossfire Hurricane team made no use of any information collected from the high-level Trump campaign official because the team determined that none of the information gathered was germane to the allegations under investigation. However, as noted above, we were concerned that the Crossfire Hurricane team did not recall having in place a plan prior to the operation involving the high-level campaign official, to address the possible collection of politically sensitive information. We also looked for but did not find documentary evidence that investigative activities involving CHSs and UCEs during Crossfire Hurricane were undertaken for political purposes rather than investigative objectives. Similarly, none of the witnesses provided any such information to us. In addition, we evaluated the roles of Lisa Page and Strzok in decision-making about how to use CHSs and UCEs in the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. We learned that the Crossfire Hurricane case agents had limited and, in some cases, no interactions with Lisa Page and that she had no authority over or even involvement in decision-making concerning the use of CHSs or UCEs. Although we found that Strzok oversaw aspects of Crossfire Hurricane and was briefed regarding the plans for the use of CHSs and UCEs, we found no evidence that Strzok gave specific directions as to which CHSs to task and how to task them or acted as the sole decision maker for any of the CHS or UCE operations. In addition, none of the Crossfire Hurricane team members stated that they believe Strzok's political views impacted the use of CHSs or UCEs, and we did not find any documentary evidence suggesting such an impact. Although we found that the Crossfire Hurricane team complied with all applicable department and FBI policies regarding the use of CHSs, we are concerned that current FBI and department policies are not sufficient to ensure appropriate oversight and accountability when such operations potentially implicate sensitive, constitutionally protected activity. During Crossfire Hurricane, the FBI conducted multiple CHS operations that involved interactions with members of a major party candidate's presidential campaign, including a high-level campaign official who was not an investigative subject. Under current department guidelines and FBI policy, those operations only required the approval of an FBI SSA, a first-level supervisor, although here, as noted above, an FBI assistant director approved all of the CHS operations. The FBI was not required to notify the department of those investigative activities, and we are unaware of any department official having had advanced knowledge of the FBI's plan to consensually monitor conversations between CHS's and Page and Papadopoulos, both during and after the time they were affiliated with the Trump campaign and a conversation with a high-level Trump campaign official. The then chief of NSD's counterintelligence and export control section, David Loffman, told the OIG, that he believes such activity should require department authorization. We agree. We recommend that the department and FBI assess the definition of a sensitive monitoring circumstance contained in the AG guidelines and the DIOG to determine whether to expand its scope, to include consensual monitoring of major party domestic political candidates for federal office or individuals prominent within those domestic political organizations, so that, at a minimum, Department consultation is required when tasking a CHS to interact with officials in national political campaigns. Such a change would be consistent with other currently existing FBI and department policies intended to ensure appropriate approval and oversight where certain constitutionally protected activity is concerned. Examples include the FBI's heightened approval requirements for sensitive UDP that is likely to affect the exercise of First Amendment rights by members of an organization, the FBI's definition of sensitive investigative matters, which includes domestic political candidates and prominent members of domestic political organizations, the Department's approval requirements for consensual monitoring when investigating alleged misconduct by a senior member of the executive branch or a member of Congress and the Department's requirement for Attorney General approval for toll record subpoenas and search warrants directed at members of the media. We believe the same considerations that resulted in the adoption of these provisions to protect the exercise of constitutional rights similarly apply to the situation present in Crossfire Hurricane, where the Department and FBI were conducting CHS operations of officials affiliated with a major party candidate's national political campaign. G., Participation in ODNI Strategic Intelligence Briefing As described in Section 5 of Chapter 10, we learned during the course of our review that in August 2016, the supervisor of the Crossfire Hurricane Investigation, SSA-1, participated on behalf of the FBI in an ODNI Strategic Intelligence Briefing given to candidate Trump and his national security advisors, including Flynn, and in a separate briefing given to candidate Clinton and her national security advisors. The stated purpose of the FBI's counterintelligence and security portion of the briefings was to provide the recipients a, quote, baseline on the presence and threat posed by foreign intelligence services to the national security of the U.S., unquote. However, we found the FBI also had an investigative purpose when it specifically selected SSA-1, a supervisor for the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, to provide the FBI briefings. SSA-1 was selected in part because Flynn, who would be attending the briefing with candidate Trump, was a subject in one of the ongoing investigations related to Crossfire Hurricane. SSA-1 told us that the briefing provided him, quote, the opportunity to gain assessment and possibly some level of familiarity with Flynn, so should we get to the point where we need to do a subject interview, I would have that to fall back on, unquote. After the meeting, SSA-1 drafted an electronic communication documenting his participation in the ODNI strategic intelligence briefing attended by Trump, Flynn, and another advisor, and added the EC to the Crossfire Hurricane investigative file. The EC described the purpose, location, and attendees of the briefing and recounted in summary fashion the portion of the briefing SSA 1 provided. Woven into the briefing's summary were questions posed to SSA 1 by Trump and Flynn and SSA 1's responses, as well as comments made by Trump and Flynn. SSA-1 told us that he documented those instances where he was engaged by the attendees as well as anything related to the FBI or pertinent to the crossfire hurricane investigation, such as comments about the Russian Federation. SSA-1 said that he also documented information that may not have been relevant at the time he recorded it, but might prove relevant in the future. SSA-1 told us that he did not memorialize in writing the briefing he participated in of candidate Clinton and her national security advisors, because the attendees did not include a subject of an FBI investigation, and because there was nothing from the other briefings that was of investigative value to the Crossfire Hurricane team. As we described earlier in connection with the FBI's decision not to conduct defensive briefings to the Trump campaign about the information the FBI received from the friendly foreign government, we did not identify any department or FBI policy that applied to that decision and determined that those decisions are judgment calls left to the discretion of FBI officials. Similarly, we did not identify any department or FBI policy or guidance that specifically addresses using FBI counterintelligence and security briefings to members of political campaigns for investigative purposes as occurred in Crossfire Hurricane. We believe there should be. Baker told us that the decision to select SSA-1 to participate in the ODNI briefing because of his involvement with Crossfire Hurricane was reached by consensus among a group that he recalled involved multiple FBI officials, including McCabe. If accurate, SSA-1's selection at least was discussed and approved by high-level officials at the FBI, which we believe should occur in advance of such activity. However, there is nothing in FBI policy requiring high-level approval. Further, the department was not informed that the FBI was using the ODNI briefing of a presidential candidate for investigative purposes, nor was ODNI made aware that the individual providing the FBI's portion of the briefing would be memorializing information from the briefing into an FBI case file for investigative purposes. ODNI strategic intelligence briefings of the type that were provided to candidates Trump and Clinton convey sensitive information to familiarize the recipients with certain national security issues and the FBI's counterintelligence and security portion of the briefings highlights why the recipients, once given access to such information, should assume that they will be targets of foreign intelligence services. The briefings are important because they attempt to prepare both national political party candidates on an equal footing for the national security threats facing them if elected. The transfer of information, the exchanges of questions and answers that occur, and the effectiveness of this process rely on an expectation of trust and good faith among the participants. The FBI's use of such briefings for investigative purposes potentially interferes with this expectation and could frustrate the purpose of future counterintelligence briefings. For this reason, we recommend that any decision to use FBI counterintelligence and security briefings to members of political campaigns for investigative purposes should require the approval of senior leaders at both the FBI and the department and approval should be documented and based on factors set forth in FBI policy.
0: Thank you for listening to this chapter of the Inspector General's Report, read by Adam Baldwin. If you enjoyed this episode and this project and want to support it, you can send your tax-deductible contribution at theunreportedstorysociety.com. This project is brought to you by the Ann and Phelan Scoop podcast. Please subscribe and share this with your friends. Thank you.